Hey, it's Don Coscarelli, filmmaker. I uh, just wrote a book. Check it out. It's called Fiction Tales from the World of Phantasm. And uh, it can teach you all the things that you never knew about the Phantasm film series. A lot of interesting stuff. Horror, violence, not much sex. Check it out. Now available on Amazon, paperback, and Kindle. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery join LAPD's Vice Squad with Peter Hyams Busting. Starring Elliot Gould and Robert Blake, two Los Angeles vice cops find themselves up against corrupt superiors when they try to bring a crime boss to justice. Quentin and Roger discuss where this movie sits in Hyams' career, how the film walks the line, and how the action sequences predate 80s Hong Kong cinema. Next up, don't let the title fool you. The bet is on and little darlings. Two 15-year-old girls from different walks of life compete to see who can lose their virginity first while at summer camp. Bad News Bears with Girls, Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichols star in an unexpectedly realistic view of female youth in the 1980s. We explore what it means for a girl to become a woman, the anxieties of keeping up with your peers, and the beautiful Paramount home video box. And lastly, there's more to do than ski in the Swiss Alps, especially when it comes to Julia. A psychological sex romp in Switzerland, Roger and Quentin dive headfirst into this immoral tale that centers around a young man named Patrick who has traveled to see his father for holiday. Sexually frustrated, Patrick's obsession about losing his virginity and becoming a man come to a head over his vacation. The main object of his affection? None other than Julia, played by Sylvia Christel. All of this and more on today's episode of the Video Archives podcast. I'm your girl, Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin and Roger. Hello, everybody. This is Quentin Tarantino. And I'm Roger Avery. And we're your hosts for the Video Archives podcast, Cut the Buckle Off. So, first up tonight is uh, a film I've, that I almost couldn't believe that Roger had never seen, that I was very, With very... my love for this director, it is kind of hard to believe. Absolutely. And especially since this is like... His birth, kind of. his Maybe not his birth, but his, well, his, it, I would his, say his coming of age. I would say kind of the, the, the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. Yeah. And that director that we're referring to is the great Peter Himes, who we've been big fans of since the 80s when we used to see his movies all the time at the theaters. One of the truly great unsung, as far as I'm concerned, one of the great unsung action directors of uh, the 70s and the 80s, you know, one of the, one of the great practitioners of uh, that genre. And that all started with the movie that we're going to talk about right now, which is his violent buddy cop movie, Busting, starring Elliot Gould and Robert Blake, as well as Alan, the great Alan Garfield, and we'll get to him in a little bit later. Busting. It's the dirty work that has to be done. 
And it takes a special kind of cop to do it. Turn your vice cops. Vice cops? What is that? Cop? Look, I don't want no trouble. Elliot Gould and Robert Blake. Two vice cops with one virtue. Busting. Busting with co-hit Little Darlings will be playing on January 10th and January 11th at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For even more information, go to thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film. So let me start by reading the back of the video box. Okay, this is an MGM UA video box. Uh, This is from the uh, Eddie Brandt's collection. And here we go. Meet the long and the short of L.A.'s Vice Squad. <laughs> Gum-chewing Keneally. That's, like, that's like such an unfair coffee thing. <laughs> no, they're making, okay, they're making fun of how tall Elliot yeah, Gould is and yeah. how short Robert Blake is. Okay, I'll start again. Meet the long and the short of L.A.'s Vice Squad. Gum-chewing Keneally, Elliot Gould, is the lanky one. Farrell, Robert Blake, is the short one with a short fuse. They may not be the best cops in town, but they sure are the funniest. Inside jokes and put-downs are a way of coping with the lurid underworld of vice, yet humor doesn't lessen the film's forceful impact. The picture, explains co-producer Robert Chartoff, is very much an examination of the relationship of the vice squad with the public and so-called criminals. Justice wears a badge in busting. So does injustice. Keneally and Farrell carry the biggest sticks in the neighborhood as long as they bust addicts and hookers. Go after the crime lord behind it all, however, and they're stopped cold by crooked cops on the kingpin's payroll. Keneally and Farrell aren't the type to blow the whistle on police corruption. Instead, they'll do anything to blow it away. (laughs) Approximate running time, one hour, 29 minutes. Color, 1973, MGM, U. A. Okay, so to just to give a little uh, um, setup to where this film falls in the career of Peter Himes, by this point in time, Peter Himes had made his directorial debut on the ABC movie of the week. He did uh, Good Night, My Love, I think is yeah, what yeah. the name of it is. It's a um, like a farewell, my lovely kind of a, a 40s uh, detective noir pastiche. Uh, starring uh, Richard Boone and uh, Michael Dunn. And then he followed it up with a a pretty interesting movie called The Rolling Man, which had uh, Dennis Weaver. That was a pretty bizarre little film. I haven't been able to stop thinking about that movie. Uh, Like, Dennis Weaver gives this kind of performance that I've never seen Dennis Weaver give. Like, Mm -hmm. I... And a progression of this performance, an arc of this, the growth of this character. Yeah, well, he's it's kind a of crazy character well, study kind of that a, was. He's kind of an ineffectual fool at the beginning. Yeah. His wife gets killed in an auto accident and he tries to, uh, uh, you know, he sees it and he gets mad. So the her lover, played by Don Stroud, who got her in the crash in the first place, you know, he tries to kill him. And then he, he doesn't, but he gets put in uh, uh, jail for attempted murder. <laughs> I did my time, but his face looked like hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> and it looks like a fucking idiot is going to prison. And he is kind of a fucking idiot, but but he gets stronger and more of a man of substance he, to some he degree. Worldly. He becomes worldly. And he becomes kind of like, a, a, you know, he's not the fool he was anymore. But not that he's 
gotten any smarter per se, but he just, you know, he's he's got convict uh, uh, panache. It was just now. tough for a TV movie. It was like this char- deep character stuff. Well, you, the thing that kept happening through the movie is you kept saying, this guy is a fucking idiot. You know, as like as if he's like mentally challenged. And I was like, no, 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 no. He's not mentally challenged. He is an idiot. I will grant you. No, but he's just plain stupid. But as the movie goes on, it does kind of start playing to some degree like a redneck Forrest Gump. Yeah. To some degree, because almost like the character of Forrest Gump, you know, he kind of goes on this long journey that uh, that actually seems quite pointless the way the the Forrest Gump journey seems, uh, and it's more like. Things happen to him rather than he makes things happen. That actually leads to like a really terrific, um, like moral uh, play. Uh, final confrontation with the Don Stroud character and Don Stroud, who's actually one of my favorite actors of uh, the seventies. I always loved Don. He's Stroud. amazing in the end. He's fantastic. Steals the movie, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. He steals the movie. It's actually one of Don Stroud's best scenes. Yeah. He's really, really terrific in the movie. I used Don Stroud as the uh, uh, in uh, Django Unchained. Was happy to use him. I can imagine, you know, being a studio head mm-hmm. and watching like the work that Peter Hyams is doing on TV and and being like, yeah, let's get that guy to do our mm-hmm. uh, yeah our our movie. Well, okay, so our after bust, our busting vice cop film. Well, after those two movies, uh, he he now moves into feature films, and he does two movies before he does busting. Mm-hmm. He does the uh, abortion drama with Pamela Sue Martin That's and Parker right. Stevenson, uh, Our Time, which I'd like to do on this show, like sometime in the next few episodes. I mean, sure. I really want to, like, I haven't seen our time since I saw when I was a kid and it was just right over my head. So I thought it was the most boring thing in the world, but I'd love to watch it now. And especially the idea of Peter Himes doing a, an abortion drama. Right? Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, that takes place in the fifties or early sixties, I guess. And, um, and then he folded it up with another uh, film noir style parody called Peeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I've never seen also uh, with uh, Michael Caine and Natalie Wood. Now, this is his next studio assignment, which he wrote, Busting. And this is the movie where, like as Roger had mentioned before, where I think the Peter Himes that we kind of know and love for the rest of his career is sort of born. Now, when he does his next movie after this, Capricorn One, yeah. he will be officially born. Yeah. That is the Peter Himes we all know. That was when I became introduced <laughs> to, yeah, like, it, it was me, kid in the theater, Capricorn One. Yeah. One of the greatest movies I'd ever seen that year. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it was yeah. like, that's that was the action film for me that year. Yeah. And it was like, okay, Peter Himes. From that moment on, yeah. I was like- Well, Himes. it's like, after he did Capricorn One, he's sort of like, okay, that's my style now. Yeah. Now, the thing about busting- I'm a real fan of the sleazy, gritty 70s cop movie. I can't get enough of them. Uh, uh, Just knowing that there's morally ambiguous cop, the Vietnam era cop. Yeah, just knowing that there's maybe even like four out there still that I haven't seen gets me very excited. I'm kind of just stuck watching them, you know, for the seventh time again and again and again. And then this goes also matches up with that, the whole kind of buddy movie. That was a big thing in the yeah, 70s. Yeah, I mean, putting on the heels of Freebie and the Bean. The yeah, Richard well, Rush. I think this is like, if I'm not mistaken, this, this might even be the same year. So I don't I don't think it's jumping off of Freebie and the Bean. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's jumping. It's just the zeitgeist. Is, yeah. These are 
It's yeah. It's you know. I well, mean, the cynicism, well, the cynicism cynicism well, is in the air. You know. In the, in well, the you're just well, you're just channeling it as buddy cops, but it's like you know the buddy movie got set up with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You For know, sure. So, so that that point, it was okay. Well, what two male stars can we team up together and they're buddies? You know, and then then part of the movie is their rapport mm-hmm. with each other. They usually has a comic spin. What makes busting a unique animal is. Part of the thing about these movies was to, depending on the side of the line socially that you lived, was to make the cops a little dubious, that they uh, they crossed the line in order to uh, bust the criminals because uh, society has now put handcuffs on them that weren't there before. And, and then that's their way to balance the scales. Like the movie Patton. You know, depending on what side of the line you sat on was your take on Patton, okay? If, if you're like, oh, this guy's a terrible warmonger, and this is like the reason why uh, America's foreign policy has been the way it has been, and this is a perfect examination of why we can't have a monster like that uh, be a general. And then if you're on another side of the line, no, see, that's the kind of general we need. We need a guy like that. That's what's the problem. We had a guy like that, we would have won the Vietnam War. Yeah, there's two ways to watch Black Hawk Down. And Patton kind of almost uh, embraces both views of that, depending on where where, where you're sitting. And the you know, same view could be looked at when it comes to Dirty Harry. The same sure. view could be looked at when it comes to Popeye Doyle in, in the French Connection. And then it just keeps on going down. Now, like Funny because it seems like there's a lot of John Milius yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, swirling yeah. around yeah. in that stew you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> the idea behind the film is uh, Keneally. Ghoul and uh, Farrell, Blake, are vice cops, and they're busting all the you know the the pimps and the petty whores and uh, gay nightclubs, gay the, nightclubs, the and, drug dealers, you know, the, uh, uh, weenie waggers. Yeah. All right, hanging out in uh, men in public toilets. You know that that's that's their their that's beat. Their, that's their beat. That's their beat. It's a crap beat. They kind of don't seem to realize how shitty the job they do is because as by virtue of the title, they're all about busting. They're all about, you know, this is their this is their beat and they want to just get as many arrests as possible. And so when they're setting up a prostitute, it doesn't matter if she's like some Nancy Allen, like high class hooker from Dress to Kill. All right. That they're busting that could like bail out the next day or if it's. A poor heroin addicted wretch that you just feel nothing but sympathy for when it's obvious that she's just like at the end of their rope. Ghoul and Blake have no sympathy for them whatsoever. They just, but they could give a shit about any of the people that they bust. They don't care about their situation. They don't care about what happens to them. They just want the bust. The best point about busting is is something that uh, Elvis Mitchell said talking about the movie because busting, you know, busting has a companion piece movie and that companion piece movie is Richard Rush's Freebie and the Bean. Yeah. But there's a decided difference between Freebie and the Bean and busting because in Freebie and the Bean, Richard Rush is taking the fascism inherently embedded in a lot of these 70s cop movies and making it a joke. 
Yeah. He's 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 playing it big. He's 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 playing he's, it for comedy. Yeah, he's playing it as 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 huge, outrageous yeah. set piece comedy. Uh, but he's leaning in to a disturbing degree of the, the, the sheer beating and fascism involved in this genre. And how funny that is. And it's and he it's, starts off with them. It's very funny. Violating way, uh, yeah. search laws yeah. by going through garbage. It's it's very funny. And the thing about it is uh, not every critic knew how to take it. And he said that, uh, I remember him giving an interview at the time. He goes, well, this critic... That I who always liked my work and who I always liked gave the film a bad review, and so then I called him up on the phone. I go, really, you didn't like it? I would have thought you would think it was funny. And he goes, well, I did think it was funny. I did laugh, but then I felt really bad, right? Because I laughed. He goes, well, that's what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to laugh. I want you to give over. Then I want you to feel a little queasy about what it is you're laughing about. Okay, so that is the methodology of where Richard Rush is coming from when he's doing this in Freebie and the Bean. As Elvis Mitchell said about busting when it comes to what Peter Himes is doing, busting is like Freebie and the Bean minus any irony. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's supposed to be funny too, but we're not meant to be laughing at the fascism. We're meant to be laughing with the fascism. Well, I mean, that's an interesting component of the movie is that it becomes this character study. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, one of the- Of Elliot Gould. Of Elliot Gould specifically. Like one of the criticisms I, I heard levied against the film was that uh, they, they didn't give them any background on who these guys were. But I saw. I don't think that's a criticism at all. I found that I found background everywhere, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, you know, you go to Elliot Gould's apartment and you see the pictures of himself on the wall that he was like a quarterback. Yeah, yeah. In college, so he was like a player. Mm-hmm. And then they indicate they had both been to Vietnam, mm-hmm. and so these guys were soldiers. It's, it's thrown out like an aside. Mm-hmm. The, the the point I think is that these guys are grunts. Mm-hmm. They're just like. Like at the most basic level, mm-hmm. that's all, they're happy. They, they would be happy doing the little things, the little mm-hmm. wins, the little grunts, mm-hmm. busting down hookers. They're fine with that if that were real. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they realize that even that little bit that they're supposed to be given, that's that, that would make them happy in their simple lives. They don't even get that anymore. I don't. Okay. okay. They're not allowed to have. That I don't anymore. quite like I, I don't quite by the character's point of departure for feeling misused by the system. I don't buy that, all right, uh, as, a, as a but viewer. That's, but that's all Elliot Gould's arc from beginning to end. But I mean, but, you know, but the thing, I, again, it, it's just, they bust this Nancy Allen-like character right at the beginning. It's one of the first things that they do. Yeah, a high-class hooker. Yeah, a high-class hooker, because that's what they do. That's their job. Yeah. Okay. And what they want to do is they want to, you know, they want to get her uh, 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 appointment book. So they can just like you know we'll see who else is bust out there. more people and bust and just yeah it's, we just want to bust people. everything they, they is wanna, a, everything is a daisy chain that it, leads to something else. It's like getting a goal. Yeah, and so the thing about it is they bust her. They even kind of like the girl a little bit. All right, you know, but it's, it's the job. We know what it, it is. All right, um, and then like the next day when uh, they appear in court, uh, she's given she's given a very good bail and she's able to get on the street the very next day. And they're like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's what's going on here? Well, she's a friend of blah, blah, blahs. And so blah, blah, blah. 
sent down to just kind of her attorney rolls into court like it's like yeah, yeah. like he's the most comfortable place he's ever been and he's like sweet talking the judge okay, okay. and okay <laughs> okay but let's get this clear it's not like they've arrested a vicious pimp that they know of all the different women that he's fucked over and they've arrested him. And now this guy is being bounced out on bail the next day because of some higher up connections. It's not that they've busted uh, some street weed peddler or uh, cocaine peddler that has higher up connections that is able to bail out the very next day. They're busting a high class prostitute that they even like. Yeah. And, but and- they're pissed that she's not going down to at least, you know, uh, you do three weeks in the county jail. That gets them to start asking more this question and that question, and that leads them to eventually leads them to the vice baron of Los Angeles, which is played by Alan Garfield. The great Alan Garfield. Hey, you know what? I found a Franklin Browner review. Oh, wow. Okay. I dug it out of the archives. Hyams busts out of his director trainers and into the studio big time with Busting, a cynical buddy cop action film that showcases his feature film arrival through energetic use of a doorway dolly. To say that he keeps the camera moving is an understatement. Hyams is so in love with movement all along all available axes that he designs his cinema to maximize the use of the humble Matthews doorway dolly. Is Busting original? No, we've seen it all before and with greater awareness, but does it bust your ass to the ground under the wheels of the Hyams Express? Yes, it does. Well said, Franklin. Burton. So, um, Elliot Gould and Robert Blake mm-hmm. are great together. They're they fucking are, they hilarious are dream. together. They are, they are a dream Together, I want to see three more movies with them playing Kennelly and Farrell. And yeah. I could watch Robert Blake do three Farrell movies by himself. I mean, <laughs> like one of the very first busts they do, like after it doesn't work out in court trying to bust the high class hooker mm-hmm. and they're given kind of a crap job. You guys are going to go down and like bust the gay club. Yeah. Yeah. As if it's almost like a joke to put them into that. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, well, and, uh, into that the situation. movie does think it's a joke. <laughs> well, not only does the, like the people in charge think it's a joke probably, but Peter Hyams probably thinks it's a joke. However, I've heard Peter Hyams defending mm-hmm. uh, this because he went out and he talked to actual vice cops mm-hmm. in Chicago, mm-hmm. in New York, in Boston, in L.A. And he says that everything that's in the movie came from one of those stories. Everything yeah. is everything really happened. OK, but OK. But so, here, they go, okay, so they go down to this gay club. Yeah. As if they're like supposed to, you know, dress up to go undercover. But Robert Blake doesn't dress up at all. <laughs> OK, well, like, that's one of those weird things. OK, so Robert Blake doesn't dress up gay to go to, to the gay club. However, Robert Blake's accoutrement at that time. At that time in 1974. At that time in the 70s. <laughs> Tight black jeans, tight. I mean, let's just like, say that look would come the to the Ohio be players wrote skin tight about Robert Blake's jeans. So like tight jeans and then like a top heavy muscle shirt that just hugs him. They go into this club and they're supposed to, you know, find crime. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually kind of a peaceful place and nothing bad is well, going well, on the, there. Well, that's what the deal about it is. Okay, so the thing is, now look. And this is like a repeating theme throughout okay. the movie. Well, look, okay, back in the 70s, a vice cop, part of your job was harassing homosexuals. That was, yeah. that literally was part of the job. 
they were also sent into gay bars to see if there's anything problem going on. And if there is, yeah. they, is they there can- Is there public, you know- Yes, exactly. Obscenities occurring. Yeah, look, look, you know, they could just be sitting at the bar, all right, uh, incognito at the bar. But like, if they can see that somebody's actually getting blown in the bathroom, then they could shut the bar down. So they're sent to this gay bar because they hear that after midnight, after close or 1.30 or whatever, after close, that they have a little like- uh, uh, a strip tea show that goes on after you know uh, after hours yeah, after hours after they close. So we want you to go to the bar, see if this is going on. If it's going on, then shut them down. And there's uh, absolutely okay. nothing going on. Okay, shut shut them down. Okay, now forget about the fact that like I don't give a fuck if this gay bar is having a a, a strip show after close. I'm all down with that. That actually sounds like a cool, cool gay bar. Uh, 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 So like, so I'm not on their side. Even if it were legit, I'm not on their side. All right. As far as like busting this poor establishment down, this poor guy. All right. And these, these, these consenting adults. All right. Who just want to do their thing. Okay. So forget about the fact that I'm not on Keneally and, and, and Farrell's side at all about this. However, that never even happens. That appears to not be the case. Uh, they are getting to closing time. There's a ton of cops outside. There, there's no talk of a strip show. There's no hint of it. It doesn't seem there like it's no going on. There is no strip club. There is no obscenities occurring in this nightclub. There club. is no, there's a bunch of, just a, a, a it's bunch just of- just a nightclub. A bunch of gay people <laughs> just enjoying themselves. They're just all right? having a Having a, having a night, n- night out. They realize something's up with these fucking guys and they try to bounce them. They just try to kick them out. Yeah, you guys are vice. Get out. Yeah. Well, I don't think they know that they're vice yet, all right? No. They just, maybe they think, oh, they're like- They're uh, just being dicks. They're just being themselves. They're being they don't d- even really want to be there and they're just kind of grumpy about it. Yeah. <laughs> they're just- but, I, but I love Antonio Fargas. You two gentlemen have the wrong attitude. <laughs> <laughs> So these guys like start a fight with the bar. The bar gets into a fight and now everyone gets busted because these guys started a fucking fight. Like, when I say these guys, I mean the two cops. Yeah, and it's like a chaotic <laughs> fight scene. It's like the fight scene at the at the go-go club in uh, Point Blank. Yeah. It's just like madness and red light. Well, it's got that. It's got that. Windows great, are suddenly smashing in, and well, cops it's got are that swarming great, in. It's and got that great gonna, visual moment where because it, where it's all bathed in red, and then there's a window, but the window is painted red, and Blake throws a guy through the window, and then when you actually see this unfiltered uh, uh, light from the outside. light coming in, like all of a sudden the blue light from the night and the bl- and the green from the trees from across the street just like it, it, it's a colorful experience yeah that happens when all of a sudden just that that uh glass window is, is busted open well and then the very very next shot mm-hmm. is court the next day and you're on the back of the back head of like a a, a big head of hair yeah, yeah and as the camera slowly comes around you know in court and we realize that the two people that are up there are you know two of the cross-dressers that were yeah. there that night who Hyams shows with no irony, or maybe with all irony. Is it all or none? I don't. He Hyams shows like with uh, with such compassion. Well, I don't know about that. All right, you don't think so? Well, here's the deal. I I felt that, but I don't know if Ham shows. If he meant to do it, I don't. I don't know if the movie is a hundred percent on their side. I mean, the thing the thing what you're saying what you're saying is a hundred percent correct because he shows that reveal. Suddenly, we realize they're hugging each other and they're well, they're scared. They're scared to death. They're scared to death. They're they're almost might 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 as well be children in this situation. All right, and that's you can make a case of vulnerable. You can make a case that that's infantilizing them. All right, but the thing is. 
they're, it's almost like they're children. And then the the judge is completely is, is humiliating. Uh, is them. completely humiliating to them. The 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 people in the court are laughing at them. I'm not a hundred percent sure that we aren't meant to be laughing at them. I think that there is an aspect that we are meant to be laughing at them, but there also is an aspect where we are meant to feel sorry for them at the same time. It sets up a series of events. Mm-hmm where we see that the people that are supposed to be the criminals are not necessarily bad people. Mm -hmm. Like even Sid Haig, who is dressed up like Alan Garfield, who is Rizzo, Mm -hmm. the- The The vice baron. Yeah, the the, the big baron of it all, who actually, when he justifies himself Mm -hmm. and and what he's doing, you kind of realize, what what am I doing that's so bad? Well, yeah, okay. And and when you really track through it- When he gives his speech, it's pretty hard to refute. He's not really doing anything that people aren't paying for willingly Mm -hmm. and nobody's getting hurt along the way and it's just part of doing business. Even the whole concept, uh, forget about the fact that like, there's nothing about this movie that- has remained relevant from a social standpoint as far as like we're on these guys' side. Okay, there's nothing about that that has survived well, the, the last the, the it, last few decades. But but that even goes even so far as to even the vice squad position yeah. of of the police force in general. Who the fuck are you to stop me from smoking a joint? Who the fuck are you to stop me from getting blown in a fucking bathroom? I, Who the fuck are you? These are victimless crimes. I'm going to say why I do think that there is an avenue into them. Mm-hmm. It's that um, soldiers who go to war usually- You keep do, hitting the soldier thing. Well, I don't remember that at all. No, but well, this <laughs> takes place during Vietnam and soldiers who go to war mm-hmm. went there because they believed in what they were doing, mm-hmm. because they, they thought that it was the right thing to do because they had an infantile um, uh, perspective on life. Yeah. And by the time you're done being at war, you don't have those illusions anymore. Mm-hmm. You realize what it is. You realize what war is. And I feel like that's the arc well, that, even, we're, that we're taking on. Well, the saving grace of these two guys as 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 bully as I feel they, for them the way I feel for grunts in war. Yeah, okay. As bully as they are, it's like they just want to accumulate bus just for their own personal gratification. They don't feel that they're cleaning up Los Angeles, all right, yeah. for the good people. They're not they're not fighting the good fight. That's not where they're coming from. They just like hanging out with each other, talking shit, making fun of all the squares, and then uh, uh, and then doing well in their job, which means that they like make three busts a fucking day. Yeah, but they just—it's about—it's about each other. They just like hanging out with each other. That's 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 what it is. They just like cracking jokes, and they like having the power mad situation of having a badge and a gun where they can do whatever the fuck they want to do. That's what it's all about. Yeah, you know they, they you know they're not Superman. They're not coming from a moral uh, from a moral high point. Having said that, they'd like to bust the bad guy. They like to bust the bad guy. They like to bust the bad guy. Makes them feel good. Makes them feel like they're doing their job. And constantly, at every point, they're shown to be assholes and intolerant all right what you know when they argue with uh uh like a desk sergeant about this or that they, you're always on the desk sergeant side yeah when, when they when they when they argue with anybody in the police force about something they're always taking this hardline approach that seems inappropriate for the moment <laughs> and you just don't realize it they're, they're just being fucking hemorrhoids to the good guys to the bad guys to the cops to the robbers to the people on the streets they're a hemorrhoid to everybody well you know what if they- except each other. And he almost makes the point, if they just played the game, yeah. 
they would have a cigar. Mm -hmm. If they just played the game, they would have a promotion. Yeah. If they just played the game mm -hmm. and just rolled with it and, and weren't gratified by just busting. Okay. So after I have now spent a nice series of time explaining why politically the movie is wanting and, uh, uh, Textually, subtextually, <laughs> every aspect about the movie is is, is uh, problematic. By the way, when I use the word problematic, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I I, I, I like that adjective. I yeah. consider all my characters problematic, and that's a good thing. All right, uh, but um, conflict is what characters are born. To yes, be. exactly. You know, and uh, and I don't have to be down with my characters' uh, goals. Okay, but in this case, though. Why am I still championing this after I've made such a case of how almost corrupt the whole enterprise seems to be morally? For two big giant reasons. How fucking funny Elliot Gould and Robert Blake are together in every goddamn scene from the beginning of the movie to the fucking end. And the masterful, masterful set piece explosion of Peter Himes action scenes where he is kind of, he, he bursts himself for what he will do. And not, and in birthing himself, he predates Hong Kong's action cinema Completely. of the eighties. I mean, we feel, we John see Wu, scenes in this. Th yeah. This is, this is pre John Woo in every fucking way and form. You know, all the cop movies of, uh, uh, of Hong Kong of the eighties, they have their forefathers in busting. Completely. Even more so than Freebie and the Bean, which is filled with a, a, a ton of set pieces itself. Because Freebie and the Bean, it's a more thoughtful movie. Right? So everything is integrated more. All right, here it's just you lurch from one action set piece to the next and to the next. And the, the movie never gets in the way. Right? Well, also, also, there's an enthusiasm to impress. Yeah. You know. Um, oh, that's, a well, that's really well said. Peter Hyams is coming out of TV. This is his big feature film. Yeah. It's an action film. Mm -hmm. He's got freaking Elliot Gould. Mm -hmm. He's got a he's got UA backing him 100% and he's like Chardoff and Winkler two of the biggest uh, uh, I, producers yeah, in the business. I am going to make this movie move. And how does he do it? He does it with a freaking Matthews Doorway Dolly. Yeah. Okay, so just to put this in perspective, a Doorway Dolly is something that, mm -hmm. you know, most grip trucks have uh, have on um, it's a small dolly. That doesn't need tracks. Yeah, it has soft wheels, um, and it's sized just enough so that it can fit through your standard small doorway. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it nice to be able to do, you know, small moves in a room. You can go down a hallway, especially in a, in a government building. You can go down a hallway, and the characters can turn and, and go into a room, and you can either be in front of them uh, uh, as they go through the room, or you can be behind them as they as you follow them in. Yeah, exactly. And because you have no track, you don't have to worry about catching the track. Yeah, you can go left, in, you can go right, shot. you can make turns. Yeah. And so Doorway Dolly is a really handy thing. Um, you know, it it, it tends... It's not like it tends to get underused, but mm -hmm. in this film in particular, I started noticing he's using the dolly in every single scene. This is pre-Steadicam. Yeah, he's and using, so, this is pre-Steadicam. Steadicam will come out in 76 uh, yeah. with a, a, a Bound for Glory. So 
He's using the doorway dolly the way Kubrick uses the track and tracking shots in Paths of Glory. Yeah. And he's using uh, uh, the doorway dolly the way other directors will just use the Steadicam for the next six years. You yeah, know, exactly. Uh, and while Kubrick like limits himself to zero point perspective and generally reverse tracking, Peter Hyams basically goes into any location he's at and says, OK, how am I going to maximize my location? Mm -hmm. The actors that I have, my backgrounds, and my props. There's a scene in a restaurant where a birthday cake is coming out. Okay, so that shot is so fucking good. It's it's yeah. it's simply incredible, and it's indicative of every single shot in the film. Where you know he starts on the cake, and I think you're in the kitchen, and then he he uses his doorway dolly to do what looks like a super complicated move, but is actually just mm -hmm. a kind of long back, a, a little zig with a little yeah. zig in it, a long back and forth, and he follows that birthday cake through this room, making use of everything, and uh, and eventually landing it at the table with our lead landing guy. it at the bar. Like, and then proceeds to slowly zoom in as they proceed to have an entire scene that finishes yeah. to its conclusion at the end of the zoom. And every single shot was like that. And if it wasn't just like, we are going to run that doorway dolly, like we're going to put a freaking V8 motor on that doorway dolly and drive it down the hallways in uh, this LA apartment building. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a doorway dolly going that fast. Yeah. You are jamming through it. There are actors that are running as fast as they can run and-, and Literally running as fast as they so, can run in a way that you would never be able to keep up with them with a real dolly on a, on a track. Like those dolly grips mm -hmm. that are yeah, doing yeah. it, those guys deserve an award. Yeah, yeah. The guys who worked on this film because it's some incredible work. And every single shot, once you start watching it, you start realizing- it's another doorway dolly shot. Mm -hmm. It's another doorway dolly shot. Oh, he's going sideways here. Well, now he's going backwards. Now he's going forwards. He's just using it in every, sh and he's, it's almost like, you know, if you have a crane yeah. and you're just like, you know what? I've got a crane. I'm going to use my crane. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 <laughs> no. He uses the doorway dolly the way Max Office uses the crane. Yeah, All right? okay, exactly. So you start with the crane and then you figure, now what do I want to do? Yeah. <laughs> And because of that, he ends up making this massively energetic movie. And that's one of the reasons it feels like it's, it's, it's the endeavoring, you know, to impress you know, that, that that you see in those Hong Kong it, movies where they don't have the resources either. It, and so they're using like a wheelchair or whatever they have yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. and, you know, to, to no, get that get, effect. They can get the, the well, they, yeah, too, yeah, for sure. They, <laughs> but they're, but using, frankly, they're but, using whatever tools you have on but, your small film to make it a big movie. But, you know, there's other connections with busting in, in a Hong Kong 80s action film because – the script is pretty fun, but it's not a very literate script. It is just going from incident to incident to incident. And that's what most Hong Kong movies are about. And it's mm -hmm. all about the action scenes. And it's all about visually capturing and creating these action scenes. So, it, you know, he's not coming from a Don Siegel point of view where he's like, you know, uh, uh, these action scenes are being born out of the story. No, it's about one big sequence after another. It's like a greatest hits album. Yeah. It's not about, it's not, not about an overriding theme. It's a greatest hits album. And like a Hong Kong action movie, it's held together by two, you know, uh, magnetic stars. All right. That uh, their star shine is like is, is carrying you through the whole film. Now, I haven't seen him in many years, but I was uh, 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 very friendly with Robert Blake and Blake never liked busting. Yeah, I, I heard that he called the movie a mistake. Well, I remember he didn't like busting because he he ragged on it in his Playboy interview. Mm. In the 70s. And he's like, oh, man, I don't even remember what that stupid story was, was about. Was he doing Beretta by that yeah, point? Yeah, he was doing Beretta. He was so already he, a, so a superstar. He had, so he had a huge superstar hit all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he's the star. Yeah, and so he's sort of like, yeah, I don't even remember what that stupid story of busting was about. You know, uh, on, a, on an average episode of Beretta, we have a better storyline than— <laughs> 
than busting does. All right. So now the thing about it, though, is he's wrong. He's wrong. And the reason he's wrong is because he's coming from an older place. He didn't think the script was that terrific. And so he thinks an average episode of Beretta has more story. And I'm actually... Beretta was a very story-filled yeah. uh, show, all right? So, yeah, an average episode of Beretta will have a better story than Busting. But that's not where Peter Himes is coming from. He's coming from doing these action set pieces that just thrill, one after another after another. And so then I brought that up to Robert Blake, and he was like, well, that sounds pretty true, because Peter Himes spent all his time with Hal Needham. Mm. The stunt coordinator. It's like that was that was who he was making the movie with. He was making the movie with the stunt coordinator. It shows, and that's that, why the movie is so fucking amazing. Yeah, it shows. It's just one great action sequence after another. And not only that, he's trying to do things that hadn't been done before. So he's sitting there with Hal Needham figuring this shit out. Yeah, that market scene. Oh, the that, market scene. Well, this, the market scene. It, it's That's I, when you realize. Almost better. Let's not even mention, well, other than say there's a market scene. Well, let's not even talk about it. Let's just, let, if you want to go watch it, Watch it and just have it just play out. Let's not let's not ruin that at all. But that I think that's one of the best action scenes of the seventies on the DVD. Elliot Gould, just to say how obsessed mm-hmm. Peter Hyams was while making this movie. Like this is this is gonna be his big film. Mm-hmm. He uh, comes into um, Elliot Gould's trailer and says, "If you fuck up my picture, I'm gonna throw acid in your eyes." <laughs> And look me in the eyes. I want you to see that I'm serious. <laughs> Peter Hines is the man. Yeah, he's the, it, that's the fucking man. man. That's like Hal Needham probably was like, you go in there and you tell those fucking actors yeah, yeah. <laughs> like who's you in t- charge. <laughs> yeah, you Needham. tell those pansies, all right, that they better hump their ass through this fucking sh- five-minute shot, all right, with all this shit going on. Many years ago, uh, we had a Robert Blake retrospective. At uh, we kind of did was a joint production between the silent movie theater and uh, uh, the new Beverly, and so and Blake came down for it, and uh, so he came and saw a bunch of the films, and I had a 16 millimeter print of Busting, and we showed Busting, and we showed uh, another film he did called Corky, and many years later, when he watched Busting with the audience, and after I had talked about it a little bit, he now liked Busting. He saw it for what it was. He thought the action scenes were really fucking terrific. Alright, now he's not fighting over well, why isn't there more heft to a story? Why, I, do, why, why doesn't one of these guys have a wife? I mean, you know, none I imagine of that stuff. you go to the premiere and the final shot is mm-hmm. like a two-minute shot of, well, I shouldn't say it, but it's, yeah. it's not of you. <laughs> well, he kind of know that. Part of the thing about the movie, though, was uh, I mean, it's interesting because it's set up as a buddy cop movie, but the movie is definitely leaning more towards the Ilya Ghoul character, almost as if it's supposed to be Ghoul and Blake was just supposed to be this uh, 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 his like a more more of a Roy Scheider kind of character from uh, uh, French Connection, more of a supporting character. But then their teamwork became so much that Blake worked his way above the title. I mean, I don't know if that's the case, but that's, it, it seems like it to some yeah. degree. Uh, so originally it was going to be Elliot Gould and Ron Liebman. Some people out there will remember yeah, from what? his big role as a union organizer in Norma Ray. You remember him as he's that Dick uh, soldier in Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah. He's George Siegel's brother uh, who runs naked through the park uh, in, um, Where's Papa? And a lot of things. Anyway, uh, so apparently, according to Robert Blake, 
Uh, they tell Ilya Go, so we cast Ron Liebman as the other guy. And Ilya Go goes, no! You can't cast another tall Jew next to me. All right, no, no, cast that short Dago guy. All right, uh, short Dago. And I love that the short Dago guy is Robert Blake. And I love that both of, both of them are so obviously based on Irish people, like yeah. Keneally and and yeah. Patrick uh, Farrell. And so uh, apparently, like uh, Robert Blake told me that, you know, so he he starts preparing for the movie. He goes, "Oh wow, I, I don't think my character is that good. I don't think this is this interesting a character." I said yes to a movie where I'm like, I'm the shitty one of a duo. Yeah. And he said that he actually got together. uh, He said he did this a lot. He would get together with Struther Martin whenever he had a hard time and they would read the script together and they would go over it. And he said Struther Martin was like saying, okay, your thing about, okay, yeah, you are supporting Elliot Gould in this. So make that be, that's the point of your character. You're all about your partner. Yeah. You've got to take care of your partner. That's your job. You're almost like the wife. That's your motivation for every scene. That's the motivation for your character. Your partner's a little out of control. You need to rein him in. That's really good advice. And that's really good advice. And and you see him doing that yeah. throughout yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, you completely. And, and in fact, when when he finally takes a hit, yeah. that's when you really feel it because of that. Yeah, yeah. Because he's the one who's kind of like mm-hmm. calming to his partner. The thing that makes their interplay so great. And this is kind of interesting because, okay, even though Peter Himes is a very good scriptwriter, and even though he wrote the script, it looks like he was down with the whole idea of like, okay, this dialogue is more or less profunctionary. I need to hire two really fun, cool actors who will come in and then just jazz the whole thing up. They'll come up with little bits of business on their own. They'll come up with little jokes. They'll come up with little wordplay. They'll work on their uh, on their patter back and forth, and that will make it all happen. And I can go hang out with Hal Needham. <laughs> yeah, and I can hang out with Hal Needham. And, uh, and in the case of both Elliot Gould and Robert Blake, he picked two fantastic actors yeah. that are really, really good at, you know, Knowing the scene, but, you know, there's a dialogue on the scene, but then now as actors, we're going to riff and we're going to come up with stuff and we're going to come up with, uh, with our own pieces of business and we're going to enliven it. And, uh, and, and and no take will be the same. Every take will have a different thing. Well, then you add Alan Garfield to that well, mix. Then, then, okay, then you add Alan Garfield, who actually is maybe the best actor in the Screen Actors Guild at that time, when it comes to that type yeah. of acting. When it comes where to just improv. Take the rudimentary dialogue that he's given is simply the starting point for him to go and then just write the scene in the playing of it. Bruce Dern does that a lot. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're always called a Dernsey when he does mm-hmm. it. But uh, Alan Garfield is so great at it that it's, it's, it's not just even improvisation. It's writing. He is writing the scene. And Blake is good at writing the scene. And Elliot Gould is writing the scene. And when they match up with Alan Garfield, who's maybe the best at it in the world, it's just like fireworks. Yeah. It's absolute fireworks. It's such absolute fireworks that what happens in the course of the movie is they want to bring down this vice kingpin. And so they start like, targeting him constantly in these like little mini raids that they do that just embarrass him and fuck him over. And at some point in the second half of the film, you start feeling sorry for Alan Garfield. Well, well, it starts when they go to his like strip club or his go-go club Uh and Sid Haig, who's like his enforcer, who looks like the evil enforcer, his bodyguard guy. 
he goes up to them and he's like, hey, guys, you know you're not supposed to be here. Like, he's actually super polite to them. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's never mean to them. No, no, they're up. He never sh- they never show the villains doing anything that would be construed as illegal even or mean. Yeah. Sid Haig is actually, like, he's politely t- confused why they're there. Like, why are you guys doing this? Yeah, they, they, they're just not playing right. They're yeah. bulls in a china shop. You know you're not supposed to be here, guys. vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. And Gala! Hey Dad, hey Quentin. Did you watch Busting? Yes, I did watch Busting. Okay, so if I walked into video archives, mm-hmm. where would I find busting? Would it be in the action section or would it be in the comedy we section? We have an action section. Guys, we like, had a drama section. A dra- so would this be in <laughs> but, drama? But, but of we, course it would. But we would sometimes put action films in the drama section. and th- We didn't have it. Well, of course we put action. We didn't have an action section. Well, <laughs> hold, hold on. Would you put running scared in the drama section or in the comedy section? That would, Billy that Crystal. Would, uh, yeah, I, I would put that in the comedy section. I, this, it's more overtly a but, comedy. Yeah, th- but this does kind of, I mean, this <laughs> goes into the drama section, but because obviously it's a drama by the end. Run, running, but, running scared would definitely go in the comedy section under R's and busting would definitely go in the drama section under B. Because- I found this movie so funny. I was actually laughing out loud funny. My mom watched it with me. And we're sitting like in the middle of the day together just laughing so hard at Elliot Gould and Robert Blake. Because it's irreverent. It's so funny. And then I look online and it's not even tagged as a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's just tagged as drama and action. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, this is a comedy. It's so funny. Elliot Gould for me is like top tier hilarious in this movie and I love top tier top tier hilarious I'm sitting there laughing I don't know what it is about it and Robert Blake with his cigarette always in his mouth. Yeah, even, even, even when, when he gets, gets his hit, ass kicked. Yeah, even when he gets a hit his and he's like- His face is mashed in like hamburger and he's and got like a cigarette. Okay, that was a corny bit. I, of course you guys like that part. Of course. <laughs> I indulge in some corny every now and then. It keeps things fun and interesting and I liked it. This- Movie, it kind of shares a little bit of DNA. I mean, you talked about like the buddy movies. Uh-huh. It shares DNA with Partners, which yeah, yeah, comes that, much later, totally. 1982. But this is, I mean, so, so much so that Robert Blake is dressing the way Ryan O'Neill is supposed yeah. to dress in, yeah. in Partners. Yeah. This yeah. would be a good double bill with Partners. This would be a good double bill yeah. with Partners. Yeah. <laughs> but I like busting so much better than I like Partners. Yeah. And you know, what's also funny is that uh, in the movie The In Laws, they do the same gag with the dentist, not like that he has a prostitute, but that he leaves his patient in the chair, like while the whole, the whole scene oh, yeah. is happening, right. like with the cotton in the mouth. And I just thought it's like, just a weird crossover to have. Well, you know like, what's funny about that scene with the dad. dentist is when it first began, I thought, oh, I felt so bad for her. I thought, oh, this is some kind of weird situation. And and then I realized, oh, no, she's the one in charge. Yeah. And she's fine. Mm-hmm. And he's fine. And everybody's fine. <laughs> <laughs> There's no crime occurring. <laughs> well, one of the things, one of the things uh, uh, the, the busting also duplicates along with Freebie and the Bean. 
is uh, the TV movie that Starsky and Hutch was based on. All right, so the original TV movie uh, uh, directed by Barry Shear with David Soul and Paul Michael Glazer playing right. Starsky and Hutch. I uh, mean, this is pretty much Starsky and Hutch. It is pretty much Starsky like, and Hutch. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty busting much- Busting is Starsky and it's Hutch. It's pretty much Starsky, it is pretty much Starsky and Hutch. The TV movie that they based the show on is really very good, but it, it's a little different from the TV show that happened for the simple fact that in the TV show, they still like threw their weight around and they still like, you know, busted the balls of all the criminals out there. But they were much, much nicer guys yeah. than they were in the TV movie. In the TV movie, they're exactly like these guys. <laughs> they are strong-arming fucking everybody. They strong-arm everybody. They're complete fucking fascists. They just, they're busting balls to bust balls. So, you know, there's like a tremendous amount of DNA with the origin of Starsky and Hutch in this as well. I'm really glad that we're watching another Peter Himes movie because, to be honest, when we watched The Keep and The Relic, I feel like I was really unfair to Of Peter course Himes you were! I, I still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I love Outland. I've said it, I said it on The Relic uh, episode, <laughs> I love Outland, so I was really excited to watch Busting, and Peter Himes is like, like, my brain felt, like, opened. Like, you guys have mentioned all these amazing sequences, uh, like, the sequence, which I'm going to call the the Harold and Philip sequence, which is the courtroom where he uh, reveals the those two are the guys. two guys yeah. that are dressed, um, yeah. they're cross-dressing. And the camera work there, I also thought it was really compelling because you don't know who they're looking at. And you can assume it's from like the gay club last night. But when he finally reveals at the moment that they're laughing at them and they're like, what's your real name? Like, that's not like your real name. Oh, it's, oh, it's Harold. Oh, it's Philip. Mm -hmm. And they're like cowering and holding each other. Yeah. Okay, it is a really powerful moment, for me at least. And I don't think it's about, like, the audience being, like, sorry versus not sorry for these guys. It's more just to show, like, these two people just went out to go have a night of fun. They're getting, like, shamed, attacked. It's terrible. And then the hooker comes in and she just gets let go. Yeah, That's the injustice that I feel like he's just trying to show is, like, oh. these two people that have nothing to do. They didn't weren't doing anything wrong. And here's the hooker who's just going to get let go because she's being represented yeah. properly. That's a very compassionate reading of that scene that actually, when it comes to what happens in the scene, follows it very well. I don't see that type of compassion in the face of Robert Blake and Elliot Gould when nope. I'm watching nope. the movie. I mean, Robert, no, Robert fact, Blake, Elliot, actually, after the scene, Elliot Gould goes up and beats up a pimp yeah. in the hallway. Just walking down the hallway and just- Just like, it's like a black dude okay, yeah, a, 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 a black guy in a red hat, I'm going to just unload yeah. my frustrations on you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's like sympathy from the characters, but I think it's sympathy from at Himes. least Himes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's an amazing sequence. I just, I think all of it, the birthday cake, as you mentioned, is really, really well done. All the tracking, reverse tracking is so good. That introduction it, it, to the nightclub scene was like Michael oh, Bay well, was yeah, well, that, yeah. It was like was Michael just, Bay showed up for the day to there's, shoot. There's so many good That scene scenes. is so, we noticed how good that shot was at the beginning. Yeah. We started talking about it in the middle and it still had a whole second half of the shot to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, like, it's just cracking me up. As much as like just looking, I'm looking at the box right now, just as much as this undeniable image of Elliot Gould and Robert Blake with their guns. And, and their badge. Uh, yeah, and their and badge. Their, and his big mustache. Uh, yeah, Gould's big mustache and his wool cap. Uh, uh, for some reason, since we've been talking for the last 15 minutes, I just keep seeing Alan Garfield running around in his hospital gown <laughs> with, with his, his ass yeah, with hanging his 
dude's ass hanging out. Yeah. And how fucking cute he looks <laughs> running around there. And how funny he is. And like, it's just, it's such, it's such a hysterical image. As if I needed another reason to like Alan Garfield's Mr. Big. All right. That gave it to me. Well, also, <laughs> also the fact that they're running around and kind of giving him like a little, uh, yeah. they're, they're uh, harassing him so much. Well, they're messing up his that, birthday. That, they light his car on fire. Yeah, And then it culminates him with them lighting his car on fire at his birthday. And he has, a, and then suddenly when he has his medical episode, mm-hmm. we're kind of with it. Yeah, yeah. It was a really good way of obfuscating what's the weird, plot that's going on. What's weird is as little story as busting like, has, it actually, some of the story it does have overlaps with Freebie and the Bean. Yeah. All right, Freebie and the Bean starts with them going through the the, uh, uh, the, the trash. trash. Yeah. All right, trying to find uh, uh, evidence against their Mr. Big. Well, that eventually happens in Busting, too. It doesn't start there. But also the same thing. The Mr. Big and Freebie and the Bean ends up having a heart attack. Yeah. You know, and then that's what brings Busting to a conclusion. Now they have a different, it all plays out differently. But, you know, for two movies that are almost opposite numbers of each other, for them to have two of those plot points is pretty, you know. One of my favorite lines in the entire movie, because you were talking about how Sid Haig is actually like really nice to them the whole time. Yeah. He's like actually when, super polite to them. When they're in the hospital and they've kind of busted in and the nurse is like, excuse me, sir, you guys can't be here. It's family only. And then I think Elliot Gould says, well, that's not immediate family. That's a creep. He's talking to Sid Hyde. That's a creep. <laughs> I, felt, I felt so bad for Sid Hyde in that moment. So I bought my VHS tape. It is a MGMA, M- MGMA. MGMA. <laughs> UA box, just like Quentin's, the one that they got. Did you say that came from Video Archives or was it uh, Eddie Brandt? Eddie Brandt. So just like the one Eddie Brandt had, mine cost me $5. Excellent. Oh, and it came from Family Video. Tatum and Christy, together for the first time in the true spirit of hot-blooded American competition. Tatum O'Neill. I love you, Mr. Patrick. Christy McNichol. I'm not a woman, Randy. In the motion picture that suddenly grows up into something very special. Little Darlings. Little Darlings with Co-Hit Busting will be playing on January 10th and January 11th at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For tickets and even more information, go to thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film. Okay, and we're back, and we're moving on to our second movie on this episode, which is from Paramount Film Studio, and even more importantly, Paramount Home Video, and it is the film Little Darlings, directed by Ronald Maxwell, that could be found under the L in comedy section. And Roger is holding the Video Archives box in his hot little hand as we speak, and he is about to read the back. Take it away, Avery. So this is a uh, 
one of the Paramount Home Video catalog title boxes, which I think are just absolutely beautiful presentations. They're, As they're, we've said many times before, from the people that brought you lipstick. <laughs> true to the artwork of the film, you know, true to the uh, the one sheets of the film. And uh, and this one, you know, has that one sheet of uh, Christy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill back to back in their little camps, you know, mm-hmm. camp T-shirts. Oh. The, the Hungry um, Wolf Camp or whatever it's called. The Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. Little Wolf. Little Wolf. Little Wolf. Little Wolf Camp. Little Wolf. The Camp Little Wolf. Camp Little Wolf. I'm sorry, but you can't be a Hungry Wolf when you are 14 years old as a girl. Yeah. That's for Across the Lake. That's the boys camp. Yeah, these Paramount boxes, as as you remember, they fold open. Yes. Uh, they're, they're just they're just lovely. They uh, they have their own little sleeve that they sit they in. They all go nicely together. This was tape twenty seven eighty seven from the Video Archives collection, and the back, along with uh, three photos from the movie, three stills from the film, says, "Well educated and well traveled Ferris Whitney Tatum O'Neill is a child of privilege." Angel Bright, Chrissy McNichol, is cool, streetwise, and tough. Little Darlings brings them together for a season of summer camp, fun, and friendship, and rivalries. With bets placed and money at stake, the other campers choose sides as Ferris and Angel are goaded on. Whoever loses her virginity first wins. Amid the classic camp conflicts, food fights, sneak outs, and crushes, Angel and Ferris deal with their own growing sexual awareness. 1980, Paramount Home Video. Okay, so I saw this movie in theaters. I saw it in the theater when it came out as well. Like pretty much everybody probably did. Everybody our age probably saw this film when it came out. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, apparently this is a time in America when the obsession was 14-year-olds must lose their virginity. And, uh, well, I, I, I think it's more of a situation about the fact that from the early seventies on the point of view of most coming of age movies was guys losing their virginity. Yeah. All right. So that, that became the issue, uh, in, 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 uh, movies in the seventies when it came to, uh, uh, coming of age. And this is like maybe one of the first times that it's all made about girls, yeah, the girls. All right, girls coming of age. Now, the fact that it's short of prepubescent girls, all right, is what gives the film this contraband kind of feeling about it. But, but that was te- just teenage- what was coming naturally back in yeah, uh, 1980. Yeah. Teenagers losing their virginity, that was the subject of most coming-of-age movies. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's, this is all about young girls makes it different. Completely, completely. Franklin Browner wrote a little uh, mm. something about it. He says... In 1980, our cultural preoccupation was with 14-year-old girls getting laid. Now, this may sound sordid and sleazy, but somehow in 1980 it wasn't, I assure you. (laughs) It was simply an awkward part of life. And awkward is the key adjective in use at Camp Little Wolf, where a game of deflowering is at play between the rich and feminine Ferris, Tatum O'Neill, and the punky and boyish angel, McNichol, whose riveting performance capably carries the heart of the movie out of its adolescence. Little Darlings reminds us to take life slow, and that one can win the race and still have lost. An A for adolescence. <laughs> An A? Wow. I, 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 I actually didn't grade it, and I had to think quickly, and I was like, A for adolescence. <laughs> okay, here's the thing, though. I think it's pretty easy to... Dismiss the film as some per fantasy, all right, about uh, 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 a young prepubescent girl losing their virginity. And it's really easy 
for adults now to say that. And that would be an easy enough thing for adults back then to say that. However, what is missed in that, when you go back to the time when the movie came out in 1980, is the fact that, except for film critics, I doubt any adults saw this during the evening shows. They're not buying a ticket to see this. This was seen by the kids it was made for. This was made for kids that are pretty much the same age as the girls who make up the cast of this movie. And that audience loved this movie. Well, and also that audience is going through this. Yes. And and still that audience is going through this. This is something that is like, it's a fact of life that people go through. And the the movies back then approached Mm -hmm. that through naturalism. You called it when you said this is like an all girls like bad news bears. It's uh, well, it, I, I think that's it had obviously that, that kind of vibe that almost like that. Fun- it's obviously jumping off from the bad news bears or the idea that that was this big hit, one of the biggest hits of the year. Movies stars one of it, the big stars of uh, uh, bad news bears, uh, uh, Tatum O'Neill. Oh, yeah. uh, but I think this was completely designed from the idea of bad news bears. Okay, so let's let's do a girls. Bad news bears. Yeah. Well, okay. So like, and I literally was, I was exactly the age of the, of the characters in the movie because I think me and Tatum O'Neill are, are the same age. Yeah. You know, and I've uh, had this monster crush on her after I saw her in uh, the bad news bears. So I made it a point to, when I saw, when a new Tatum O'Neill movie was coming out, that was like, I had a date with her almost. All right. You know? Oh uh, yeah. And, and at the time that this mm-hmm. came out, you mm-hmm. were either like into Christy McNichol or Tatum O'Neill. Well, and, but I was also, I wasn't into Christy McNichol because I had this big crush on her, but I watched her on her TV show, Family. I watched her every week. So I saw the movie when it came out and I thought it was very, very funny. I enjoyed it very much. The whole audience that I was with enjoyed it. The kids at school, they talked about it. They enjoyed it. And then I kind of forgot about it for the next 30 or so years. Then about 12 years ago, something like that, I was uh, dating a girl in Austin, a really cool girl named uh, Julia Irving. Hello, Joey, if you're listening. We were looking through my video collection, deciding what to watch. And she was like, oh, well, we've got to watch Little Darlings. So that's it's a classic. we got to watch Little Darlings. So we watched it, and we had this fantastic screening. But the point being, though, was I had not realized how iconic Little Darlings was for girls who saw it at the right age, you know, within 80, or maybe they saw it on on, uh, cable television or they saw it on video, you know, from 84 on or whatever. I was not, I did not know the pop cultural purchase that it had for young girls who saw it around its time. And that pop culture purchase was very significant. They love the movie. They know all, I mean, just the way we know Bad News Bears. And, and know the names of all the different characters and know all the jokes and know the entire dynamic uh, she did about the movie. Even the uh, the movie has a fantastic soft rock jukebox soundtrack to it that is just kind of perfect. And no matter how many times I've seen the movie, I can never remember the opening song. I can never remember the closing song, even though they were popular hits in the day. But but almost their innocuousness, the fact that you can't remember which songs they were, but they just kind of fit perfectly for the close and perfectly for the beginning, almost just shows 
the appropriateness There's of a them. Blondie song in the yeah, middle, right in the, in the middle. middle. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a one way or the uh, one, yeah, one way, way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was really taken with watching the movie with her about how iconic this had become for girls. And I can see it. It's it's right there. Of course it's going to be iconic, especially if you saw it at the right kind of age. Well, and it's a moral play on yeah. top of it all with a fantastic kind of moral twist and a, and a, and a sort of moral discussion yeah. at the end of it. And it all feels really real and relatable. Mm-hmm. And th- what's shocked me was when I was young, like a lot of kids my age, I was in love with Tatum O'Neill. Mm-hmm. I was less... Interested in Christy McNichol, mostly because she kept appearing like on Teen Beat or Tiger Beat or whatever that yeah, yeah. magazine yeah, yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I was just a big thing at the time. hated that magazine. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so for some reason, I wasn't. But when watching the movie again, oh, I was shocked at how good Christy McNichol's performance is and how deep her performance runs and goes and how Ron Maxwell protects her. And gives her the space she needs to find and discover that performance. I mean, you can feel his patience as a director just Mm -hmm. allowing her to go and protecting her along the way. And she delivers this incredible, real, true, tragic performance. It's, 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 it it was, I was gripped by it while watching the movie. It's very interesting because the characters are set up to be, you know, there's, there's the rich, spoiled one. There's the one from the projects, all right? Yeah. That's the tough smoking cigarettes. Where she smokes too much is my only problem. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. She's smoking all the time. She's got a, 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 a Levi jacket on, dressed like just like Joan Jett before Joan Jett. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, not before Joan Jett. That's right around the Joan Jett time. Yeah, she's like a, one of the runaways. Yeah, yeah. She might as well be one of the runaways. Yeah. Now, here's the thing about the movie, though. While critics didn't care for it, they all recognized. Christy McNichols' performance. Yeah. And so every review had like a paragraph that just talked about, hey, Christy McNichol is the real deal. And it is kind of surprising the depth that the movie takes when it comes to her character in the uh, pretty much the last 45 minutes of the film. And one of the things that uh, you brought up, there was like a, a take where she has a... a on the swing? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. So there's a moment on the swing, I think I know what you're talking about, uh-huh. where this long extended take of her, where for a while she does this kind of dramatic pause, like mm-hmm. her her line delivery stops and she kind of looks off camera and she, she's looking and then she finds it and she and she reels it in and then and she digs deep and it's like this whole movement. It's like mm-hmm. it's like this silent movement that's occurring the inside movie of her. Stops to uh, take in her reaction and Christy McNichols' performance. And I actually wondered, you know, is that her just doing the performance or has have they cut some sound? Has the director talked to her in between, keep the camera rolling? It almost felt like they could have been doing like a little um, I think it's a con- trick or trick like that. And, that. and that could have been the case, but it's just that her performance is so well, I, I, I think gripping one, in I think, that moment. I think one of the things about it is, I don't know if it's a situation where the director is talking to her over the soundtrack and they're just dropping it out. But I'm positive that Kristen McNichol and Ron Maxwell created a liaison between director and actress. I think uh, Ron Maxwell realized what he had when it came to Kristen McNichol and uh, 
I think he doubled down on directing her, and I think she accepted it. He also realizes that she's the dramatic heart of the screenplay. Yeah, and I, I and I think it is. I think it is a connection of just uh, a director and an actor who have found each other in just the right way, and they are working in a, a symbiotic relationship. And also, I mean, she is the dramatic heart of the film, and part of it is that this is made at a time when a tomboy was just a tomboy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this whole thing of what is it to be a woman? Like, are you a woman yet? Mm-hmm. And there's the one, like, experienced. Uh, uh, Rosanna Arquette wanted Yeah, I think checked, her name yeah. is Krista Erickson, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. She was, the, she was the phony Rosanna Arquette. At that time, there was Rosanna Arquette, <laughs> we're on the same age, and then there was this gal. And you never knew which one was which, but there was this phony Rosanna Arquette, and that's this girl. And she's <laughs> like the experienced or were to believe that she's experienced. We're to believe, yeah. Well, she, and, but remember, supposedly she's engaged. Yeah, and she's supposed to, exactly. And, <laughs> and her kind of pushing the girls of, you know, mm-hmm. have you lost your virginity yet? Are you a woman yet? Mm-hmm. And this whole kind of this pressure that's, that's there and that she increases this pressure. And there comes a moment where the question gets asked, well, are you a lesbian? Mm-hmm. And it never actually gets answered. Mm-hmm. The question is never actually answered. But I'm watching Chrissy McNichol because the fact that it's not answered, like in 1980, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't have registered in me at all that it wasn't answered. Mm-hmm. Today, in 2022, I'm super conscious of her being pressured into this yeah. into this contest in this situation. And it gave me great anxiety as I was watching the film on her behalf. And, it, and when she is suddenly struggling in these moments with Matt Dillon, it's downright crushingly painful. It's It's it's, hard to watch. The idea that she actually might be gay nowadays is like a subtext that almost reads as text. Um, It it doesn't really help matters much that Matt Dillon and her almost look alike, brother and sister. Well, that actually (laughs) goes a long way to the thing because it's like, okay, even if the character is gay. She wants to win the competition. Yeah, she's uh, highly competitive. Yeah, okay. There does seem like a tragedy where it's like the the tragedy I think in, in the script is supposed to be that these girls are being pushed to lose their virginity before they're ready due to peer pressure. Yeah. Uh, now it reads like Chris McNichol is being forced to have sex with a man out of peer pressure when that's not her intention whatsoever. But, Thick, the, thing, yeah. but the thing that keeps going along with that is the fact that- uh, when she does choose somebody, she chooses Matt Dillon, who looks exactly like her. <laughs> he looks more like her than Jimmy McNichol looks like Christine McNichol. You know, so it's like, you know, so there's almost this, this subtext going on. Well, if I have to fuck a dude, <laughs> I'll pick a dude who looks like me, but is prettier than me. <laughs> and then Matt Dillon, you know, and actually the guys in this movie, Armand Asante and Matt Dillon, uh-huh. I think both like do a really good job in a really difficult uh, role to- I, I think Mac Dillon is the weakest of the of, of the quartet. All right. You know, he, he- He comes across like a bag of hammers a little bit. However- he does, And he kind of doesn't- uh, I, I think there is- I think the script is above him. All right. He doesn't quite realize his role or what's supposed to be going on. At the same time, he looks like a dick asshole fucking kid at that age. All right, you know, they're the he, on, in another way, it might be the most authentic performance. Well, all right, he's like in a total film. dick until he realizes that. Oh, wait a minute, you were a virgin, mm-hmm. and then suddenly he starts treating her really 
like weirdly gently. Like suddenly mm. he's kind of gently holding her and kissing her shoulder. And, and yeah, like meekly yeah. almost. And the, okay, now Tatum O'Neill, her object of affection is like the sexy cop counselor yeah, right, played by Armada Asante. Now I'm a big, I was a huge Paradise Alley fan. So I was totally happy to see Armada Asante doing more things. And so I was very, you know, he was one of the reasons I wanted to see the movie was to see Armada Asante in something It's a else. hard role that he has to do. He's terrific in the he, film. He's fantastic because he, he, he has to be sexy. He's got to be like this leading well, man he's that's play, attractive well, to he's a gotta, 14-year-old girl. He's got to play. He's got to play a 14-year-old. He's got to play a 14-year-old dreamboat, and he does a b- pretty great job of playing a 14-year-old girl's dreamboat. And, right. But and he's also self-effacing enough in it that he's kind of like aware enough about who he is in it that yeah. he's like, look. A year from now, you're going to look at me. You're not going to be like, what was I thinking? <laughs> and frankly, I love his line reading when he. Ted Moneo brags that, that they had sex, but they didn't. And he confronts her about it. And it's actually his line reading I've remembered like since the very first time I saw the movie. Of course we can talk about it. After all, we've been intimate, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> I also have to like call out the the cast no, yeah. of young girls all of whom Which ultimately are is, amazing uh, in this movie. Like the Bad News Bears go a long way to making the entire movie work. It, like, from, let's start with the youngest. Yeah. There's this little girl, Penelope, played by an actress named Jen Thompson. Yeah. Who is the one who's too young to be there. Yeah, she's yeah. She's the okay. 10-year-old among the 14-year-olds. Yeah, she's the 10-year-old that is like, she's way more mature than the other 10-year-olds. So she doesn't want to hang out with all the babies. So she wants to hang out with the older girls. She completely like distinguishes herself in this movie and comes across as one as like a comic genius. I know she comes, she's almost like a little WC fields in the movie. She, she's like a little WC fields the way she just keeps coming in with her little jokes. And she, she lands every laugh she wants. All right. Every time they cut to her, it's always a crack up, you know? (laughs) Also great. And surprising, I couldn't believe my eyes to see Cynthia Nixon playing Sunshine, the little- uh, The hippie girl. The hippie girl whose dad is like uh, like one of the vice cops in Busting or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Like- Cynthia Nixon is so funny in this movie. On one hand, she's giving a full-on comic caricature, but then you watch her in certain scenes- and even at this age, she's such a good, realistic actress. You yeah. see that even though it's a caricature she's playing, she's not playing it like a caricature. She keeps throwing these realistic moments, like when she sits, you know, uh, Indian style, uh, you know, yeah. all the time or whatever. And she just keeps making the, this this ridiculous character not ridiculous. She, it, it's, you know, she's like passing out echinacea and like doing hippie things. She's and, so funny in the movie. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful character and a wonderful characterization. Each of the little girls has her superpower, so yeah, to speak, yeah, uh, you know, and like her superpower is her kind of hippie healing quality yeah. stuff. And uh, Jen Thompson's Penelope is like little tough talking girl. And then there's uh-huh. the, the kind of the agent of them, uh, Alexa Kennan playing uh-huh. Dana. Who's sort of the... Dana, who is, is one of my favorite performances in the film. Actually, one of the funniest things in the entire thing is her little pep talk to Christine McNichol. And she's smoking a cigarette. Yeah, and, and pacing. And pacing. <laughs> and she's never had sex, but she's like, okay, so remember this. And remember this. And don't be nervous. And, you know, and she's and, like... <laughs> and you've got to be sure to do this. Why? I don't know. <laughs> you just have to. <laughs> I don't know. That, I've just always heard that. <laughs> all of the the girls in this are really well fleshed out, and all of the you know all of the um, 
the meat that they give Christy McNichol is fantastic you know, mm. to, to work with. Yeah. And, and it really gives her these like kind of deep conflicts and, and this kind of bittersweet ending where the two girls have come together in their competition. It's, okay, it, it's, I'm almost <laughs> embarrassed to say how much it means to me the final freeze frame at the end when the girls become friends. I, I, it, it's moving. It actually moves me. And then that soft rock song comes on and it's exactly where I want to be. And I had a magnificent time watching this movie. You know, yeah. just listen to that song play over the freeze frame and the credits play. It's like, wow, what a time. What a time. I'm, 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 it shouldn't work on me as good as it does, but it totally does. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. are back and joined by the lovely Gala Avery. Hello, Gala. Gala, hey, tell, tell, hey, us, tell us your insights, little darlings, because I bet they're strong. A little bit different than the yeah. two 50-year-old men in the room. Yeah, yeah. You know, some out there may groan and roll their eyes when they read what this movie is about, and then they see that it's directed by a dude. And you can think, how can a guy tell my coming of age story, my losing of my virginity story? Yeah, where was Penny Marshall? Yeah. (laughs) What what Ronald Maxwell brings to this movie is so sensitive that it spoke to some deep part of me that I didn't even know existed. Wow. Until I watched this movie. And so respectfully, I don't have that much to say about this film because it spoke to that deep private part of me which I feel like is the entire thesis of this movie, mm-hmm. is that it's a private thing. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly what they say in the end. I am not Christy McNichol, obviously. I'm not out there smoking cigarettes at 15, going to summer camp, like getting laid by Matt Dillon. Well, I know you're not going to summer camp. <laughs> yeah. Kicking guys in the balls <laughs> to give you a problem. Balls. I'm not stealing <laughs> buses. But you know what? I, I lived a little bit of what Christy McNichol lived because though the girls in my middle school were so mean to me. I was that like kind of weird girl in school. I mean, like I liked horror movies Mm -hmm. and I like ran with the guys and stuff. And I had these girls in the bathroom that would come up to me and be like, oh, what's wrong with you? Are you a lesbian? You had Cinder the model. Yeah, I had like those girls that came up to me and spread rumors about me throughout the school saying that I was a lesbian. Now, first off, even at that age, I know that there's nothing wrong with being gay. So who cares? Mm -hmm. It's like the wrong thing to make fun of me for. But it's really hurtful when you're like that 15 year old girl and you're trying to figure when you yourself get called, out. When you get called anything. When you get called by, anything. By people, and also something that's not true, but you know it's not wrong. Mm-hmm. And so you have to like defend yourself, but like you also know it's not wrong for that to happen. Yeah. But so like, I felt myself in Christy McNichol. And when she and Matt Dillon finally have sex together and like you just see Tatum O'Neill and she's all like, she hasn't had sex, but she's like living this fantasy of love she's still in the with fantasy. her teacher. And then you see Christy McNichol and she says, 
it was like you could see right through me. Yeah. It wasn't like what I expected. Man, <laughs> that line, that was an amazing line. That was an amazing moment. I And felt, well delivered by and Chris McNichol. Well delivered yeah. by Chris McNichol. And she put my coming of age story into words that I don't think I could ever put into words for myself. And it was really powerful for me to, wa- for me to watch. Wow. Like the whole, everything that you guys have talked about, like the gang, mm-hmm. the gang is so amazing. Like this, like, that's what I was like when I was watching, like, ha ha, the gang, I love this movie. I love, I love when they go steal all the condoms and they're like, they take the entire. That's one of the, that's one of the best, that's one it's of the best adventure. comedy bits. It's a real yeah. adventure. When, when they send Penelope. When and, they send uh, Penelope. <laughs> and for those that haven't seen it yet, they send Penelope, who's like the littlest one, through the window of the boys' bathroom to get condoms for the girls so that they can have safe sex because it's not just on the, like the pills around, but mm. it's not just on the girls. Now, she can't get the condoms out, so she rips the entire machine off the wall, and mm-hmm. the girls take it back with them mm-hmm. and destroy it in the forest and are, like, screaming with glee as they open up condoms mm-hmm. once they've ripped it open, and they're, like, blowing them into balloons. And it's so funny. And then eventually <laughs> one of the girls' moms finds it in the drawer. Yeah, at home, yeah, like, yeah. And it's so funny. Now, the gang is, like, what I was enjoying during the movie, but it's, like, it's Christy McNichol's performance that has stayed with me afterwards yeah. and that I just keep thinking about her. It's a pained performance. It's a pained performance. Now, Tatum O'Neill and Armand Asante, he has such a difficult job in the movie mm. because he is like playing what could be a pedophile, but is he's trying. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't. That's what I mean. He hasn't done anything. But it's like everyone else, like when you see like, and that's the whole point, I think, of him calling her out in the end because mm. she's kind of told all the girls, like, oh, we had sex. And he's like, this like makes me look like I'm a pedophile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That I can lose my job. I'm like the high school French teacher. But he loves her also. Like he loves that girl. He he doesn't want to deflower he her and ruin a, her. Yeah, and exactly. He doesn't want to do he what knows. Matt Dillon does yeah, to yeah. Christy McNichol. Yeah. Which is Christy McNichol sitting alone on the floor. Realizing well, he's also not a horny boy through. who's yeah. just trying to, you know, get another notch on his yeah. Uh, yeah. on his airplane. But I, <laughs> I love what Tatum O'Neill says to him when she says, can I ask you something personal? What sign are you? That's uh, that's like so 15-year-old girl. Yeah. That's still 26-year-old girl. I'm still asking guys, what sign are you? Yeah. <laughs> it, this movie captures this really special coming-of-age story that I didn't think it was possible to like artfully tell the story of these two 15-year-old girls losing their virginity without it being like a perverted fantasy of some dude. I don't know. It it did something I didn't think it could be done. And then like, yes, you can get lost in in – and the drama that Christine Nichol brings to the film through her very open performance. But at the same time, the movie is a laugh fest. Oh my God, for it's the most so part, funny. Right? Except for like a couple of moments, you laugh from the beginning to the end. And I think it's because the movie makes you feel comfortable because you start laughing yeah. and then you're still laughing. And then all of a sudden you're at the end where you're on the swing set with Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichol, and they're sitting there, and Tatum O'Neill hasn't really told her yet that she's lying. Mm-hmm. And she finally reveals to her, like, oh, we didn't have sex. And that moment is so painful to watch because all Christy McNichols' character wants, all Angel wants, is someone to be there with her, Mm -hmm. that she's not alone. Because that's what she tells Matt Dillon is, Mm -hmm. I feel so alone. I feel so lonesome right now. Even when he's like, I think I love you, baby. Mm -hmm. She's like, I feel so lonesome. (laughs) And she thinks that she has Tatum O'Neill that's in the same exact boat as her. And then it just is revealed to her that, like, she doesn't have anyone. She's all lonesome. And it's such a powerful moment. I think every, I think every girl, I think every guy, I think everyone should watch this movie. It's just that good. It's terrific. Now, I'm going to uh, read to you a review of Little Darlings that does not agree 
with us <laughs> whatsoever. All right, and this is from the uh, April 1980 uh, issue of Films in Review. Little Darlings. Virginity, apparently, is no longer standard girls' camp gear. Pack the calamine lotion, sew the name into the panties, but travel light. Leave behind your virtue. <laughs> that, at least, is the contention of the imbecilic and annoyingly sloppy piece of cinema <laughs> called, ironically, I imagine, Little Darlings. A pair of 15-year-olds thrown together at Lone Wolf Camp one July are racing to see who can lose it, quote-unquote, first, responding to the peer pressure of their unattractive clutch of bunkmates. The carpe diem theme has never looked more perally and salacious. These lilies have festered long before their rosebuds were ever gathered. A sort of meatballs and halter top, Little Darlings is not only ugly thematically, it is a mess technically. Ooh. And then he goes on, da 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 and that was Jack- A mess technically. Yes. That was Jack Curry of Films and Review. Well, Jack Curry, I respectfully disagree with you. I was going to say, is that Franklin Browner writing in there? Like, <laughs> <laughs> he liked it. Yeah, Franklin Browner liked Franklin it. Franklin Browner loves it. You know, actually, though, that review, though, reminds me, though, that their camp is called Lone Wolf Camp. And it's like Christy McNichols is the lone wolf. And you know what kills- Is it lone wolf or I think is it's, it- I think they just said lone wolf. Yeah, but I, I don't know he's right. About well, that. lone wolf, little wolf. And yeah. you know what kills the wolf is the tomahawk. And that's what the boys camp is called. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And so it's like she's that lone wolf. She's that lone little wolf. And he's that tomahawk. And he's just coming in ready to poison. He's okay, also- so you- Okay, so- Okay, so let's just- I'm going to get this straight, though. Okay, so you're like Christy McNichol, but you're not smoking cigarettes- you're not stealing buses. <laughs> You're not stealing canoes and running off and just like stealing a guy. You're not all like, right hey, away, hey, man. Randy. Yeah, hey, Randy, hop in here, all right? <laughs> As you just whisk Randy away. No, I'm not. But you know what? <laughs> I think inside of every girl, there is a Christy McNichol. Yeah. I think where you're sitting there by yourself and you feel that so lonesome. Is there also a Tatum O'Neill? And there is also a Tatum O'Neill yeah. who's asking. Who's the fan? Who's just wants to live in the fantasy? Who just wants and- to live in the fantasy of pure love? Oh, my my wife. Uh, uh, Daniela is absolutely the Tatum O'Neill character. Yeah. She is definitely not the Chris uh, McNichol character. She is absolutely Ferris. I, think, I married think, Ferris in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a Ferris and I think there's an angel inside of all of us mm-hmm. because there is that girl that wants to just like live in the fantasy. You want to ask something personal, what's your sign? You want, it, you want him to be a Leo. Mm-hmm. You want your French teacher to be like, oh, I'm a Leo and be like, mm-hmm. ooh. And she's just into the romance And she's just into all. the romance and you know what? And that's 100% okay. And there's also that Christy McNichol inside of you where you're sitting on the ground and you're thinking, man, this is not what I was told it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I feel so alone right now. No one else out there understands what yeah, I feel and, like. And it's irreversible. And it's irreversible. And, and you've been kind of told by this little bitch, which I love her, uh-huh. but this girl in this rat costume yeah. that like what it's going <laughs> right, to be she like. She is a girl in a rat costume. <laughs> she is that a girl is, in a rat costume. That is what and she there is. is one of those girls that Every I, like every girl out there knows one of these girls. If you don't know her, you are her, and that's a problem. <laughs> but you know, you know this girl, and she is like out there to ruin your life because she's there to make you think that you're not the same as everyone else, and you're the different one. But yeah. you know what? In and the she end, gets all the other ones to basically to lie, yeah, to, and to rally against, yeah, because in the end, and, mis- often, and, and misrepresent themselves, and misrepresent yeah. themselves. And yeah. you know what? This movie. You just be who you are, and it's okay to be who you are, and just take things at your own yeah, and pace. Take, and take it slow. Take, yeah. it, there's no rush. Little Darlings, a uh, female coming of age classic. 
And you know what? You guys are in luck because this movie is available for free on the Internet Archive. All you got to do is just go to the Internet Archive and type in Little Darlings 1980 and you can watch it for free. Or you can get a VHS tape. I got mine. It's a re-release. So I don't have this beautiful chiclet box mm-hmm. or gatefold as they're actually gatefold. called. Gatefold. Um, I got a 1992 re-release. It's in a big red box and I got it for $7.99. Hi, I'm talking to all you bachelor guys out there. My name is Sylvia Christel. Remember me from Emmanuel, that naughty French film? I'd like you to come and see me in the flesh in my new film. It's called Julia. I'm told it's very sexy. In fact, some people call it the ultimate erotic experience. Why don't you come along and see me this week and bring your girlfriend? So we're back, and now we're on to the third film, of our triple feature, and that is straight from Video Gems, and it is uh, the German erotic film Julia, starring Sylvia Cristal. And it says on the box, first Sylvia Cristal was Emmanuel, now she's Julia. And I'm handing it over to Roger to read the box. Now I have a different uh, Video Gems mm-hmm. box. Um, it's also a video gems box, but this is just a normal, uh, everyday, what do you call these? Uh, uh just a, uh, paper box. Paper box. Yeah. A, a vertical, to, vertical have, slide paper box. We, what he's talking about is we have two different videos in front of us. I have an old beta one, but it has the old school video gems clamshell box. And then this is obviously one done. Yeah. Uh, like a vinyl, meant- vinyl printed onto the vinyl of the clamshell. No, right? that's why video gems was, that their boxes quality, were amazing. Quality, yeah. quality box. And so it, the. You've got a cheapy one that they did obviously five years later. I've got a cheapy, but it's an Eddie Brantz and, um. At the front, it says, Sylvia Crystal is Julia in her first adventure. Did they make other Julias after this? No, I think I, I think they're making a reference to her being to, a virgin. Yeah. Oh, oh <laughs> yes, that's right. And because the byline- Gala could have told you And that. the byline is, and I should have known that, because the byline is, the first time can be the best time. Sylvia Crystal's back as Julia, and she's doing things that she'd never think of doing as Emmanuel. In this erotic adventure- Julia tries desperately to lose her virginity amidst the quirky residents of a posh (laughs) Swiss villa. Unfortunately, besides a strange pianist who composes in the nude and a pair of lustful lovers with a taste for whipped cream, there are only two candidates suitable for her deflowering. But Patrick, a naive boarding school pupil, has cold feet, and Ralph, Patrick's father, has his hands full with his own mistress. For the moment. Before long, it's a breakneck race to the sheets between father and son as Julia weaves her uniquely seductive spell and creates a most unusual family affair. If you like Sylvia Crystal as Emmanuel, you'll love her as Julia, a girl who proves that the first time can be the best time. Color, rated R, and running a nice Clean, efficient, 83 minutes. Now, one of the things that the uh, the back of the box is uh, fudging a little bit about is making it sound, which is understandable because Sylvie Cristel is how they're selling the entire movie, is the movie's not about Julia. It's about the young boy in the movie named Patrick. And uh, so the film starts when Patrick's on a, on a train and he's going to spend, apparently, like, like the summer 
with his father. His father and his mother are are, are divorced and, and they're or separated. They're separated and they they definitely have big issues with each other. And uh, so you know, Patrick is going to spend some time uh, with his dad. It's actually really funny because he says his mother. He's like, ah, my mother, She's she just wants to sleep with the cash register because yeah. she runs the business yeah, 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 part yeah, of their yeah, yeah, thing. And right. so she's just consumed with business. And Patrick's this horny boy, and he's uh, on this. And he's, he's a little weirdo. He's kind he, of a creep. He's right. a little, like, overly respectful. But, he's, but there's a creepy there's a creepy aspect about him. He's, 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 he's a little bit of a crumb. He's all right? Swiss. You know, you're he's not Swiss. Really, you're not really supposed to, you're not supposed to be digging him that much. So he's on the uh, uh, the train. And then he sees this uh, uh, kind of hot, sexy woman riding in the, uh, the car by herself as she's sleeping, but she's in a tight dress and she's got her thighs crossed and she looks really hot. Mm-hmm. So he just sits into that in that room with her and uh, hopes something will happen. Uh, she wakes up. She takes a provocative. Uh, she doesn't say anything, but she takes a provocative. Uh, uh, Starts lounging in front yeah, of him, lounging, like, almost yeah. like exposing herself a little bit. Yeah, she kind of takes this provocative uh, uh, position in the, in the chair. He can't handle it. He steps outside, and then another guy. All right, like shows an up. older, more handsome uh, yeah. businessman type guy who can handle it comes in there, closes the door, shuts the curtains on, shuts him. the curtains on them. <laughs> then the ticket guy comes in. You see, like that they've been making out. Then it also kind of plays out that like she leaves and goes to the bathroom and then he goes into the bathroom and he fucks her in the bathroom. Yeah. The, the, the stranger. Loudly, the loudly. Stra- yeah, the stranger. As, as Patrick sits outside listening, listening to, her. to it and just eats his heart out. Yeah. All right. Because that could have been him if he, he had, wanted it to be. He him. wanted to be him if he had if he had reacted quicker. It could have been him. OK, now. I said this early on. A thing about a lot of these European Movies, these erotic films at this time, whether it be uh, uh, Italian or German, they oftentimes have a situation that by the time you get to the end of the movie, it plays out, oh, this could have been Fight Club. Because there is this aspect about like, okay, is she really doing this? Or is this just his fantasy? Yeah. What you know? Uh, this is what he thinks that she's doing in the bathroom. If he had, uh, if, if if he had, uh, you know, she ima- he's imagining that she's fucking the the stranger. She's yeah, imagining she's having sex because that's the kind of girl he wants her to be. Yeah. And so this is, could be a wild imagination. You're not quite sure. So then uh, the train arrives. He goes and meets his father outside, and then it turns out. Uh, his father's also waiting for his girlfriend to show up for the summer, and it turns out it's that girl. Yeah. Played by Terry Tordell. Yeah, who I think uh, almost steals the show. So the thing about it is, so, okay, this could be a situation. It's not set up in a way where it it's like, oh, now the son has all this goods on the girl, so he's going to drop dime on her and, and ruin the whole relationship with the father. Well, no, he doesn't even think about doing that. And uh, and she comes, she's even kind of playing it off a little bit. Uh, and so, like, you're still kind of thinking, well, did that even happen? I mean, that might just be his overactive imagination. Yeah. That's who he wants the girl to be. Then the movie moves so far past that that you just assume, well, I guess that's not the case. Yeah. Only for it to turn out to be the case. (laughs) (laughs) At the end. And then, like, all of a sudden, the end shows up, and I go, see, Roger? See, I told you. This is like a – I did not know this was how it's going to end, but this is a standard thing in these kind of movies. What I kind of loved about the film was that even though it's this – 
European mm. sex romp, there was this feeling of impending moral dread mm-hmm. constantly hanging over mm-hmm. not just our our lead character because he's trying to lose his virginity or wanting well, to, no, again, well, but that, her as well. Julie but that as also, well. Everybody in it is, there's this kind of, well, let, everything let, is off a little bit. Well, let's keep going on with setting up the scenario. Okay, so okay. the scenario is, is the idea that Patrick and his father and his father's new girlfriend are uh, going to this Their villa. Swiss it, villa. The yeah. Swiss villa that they're going to spend the summer in. Now, Julia is a neighbor girl. I, I can't, you're not, it's not for sure. Is she a neighbor girl? Is she, uh, she could be the daughter of a maid of, in, in the area. You kind of almost get the impression that Julia isn't of the same class, maybe, as the rest of them. Yeah. But the boy has been there many times over the course of the years. He and knows he, her. You know, they've been sweethearts. She lives somewhere else on the lake or yeah, yeah, wherever yeah. they live, you know, on and and they both swim over to the same yeah. little platform every now and then. So exactly. they've known each other over they've the years. They've known each other you know, over the course of different summers. They've yeah. gotten to know each other and they ha- and they have their and own. And she's Blossom. And they, she's Blossom and they have their own thing. And so they're really hitting it off and everything is going great. However, both Patrick is a virgin and Julia is a virgin. And Patrick is very nervous about the idea of, of, uh, of being the one of taking Julia's virginity. As young girls, well, it's also n- nerving. You're a young man and you've not done yeah. it before. And you're- if, Yeah, if- if she had had it, it's full one, of anxiety, that it's a time. combination of one. The boy Patrick wants to have sex with a woman who ha- has had experience his first time, so that's not Julia, and also he just feels insecure about. Yeah, the and idea Julia of, would like for him to. She wants him to be the guy. She would be like, "Yeah, let's do it," and it doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and so finally, at some point during this idyllic summer in Switzerland. Patrick's father comes to Patrick and goes, so what's going on with you and Julia? Are you taking care of business? What's the deal? Yeah. Well, you know, she's she's a virgin. Well, what's wrong with that? You know? Uh-uh. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> well, I'm not really sure. Well, you better I'm, hurry up or I'll get in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boy, I, I, I could take care of that. Yeah. yeah, easily, easy peasy. You know, he goes, hey, but look, hey, you know, maybe you don't want to deal with that. Maybe she's just too young. And then I'll get you a hooker. All right. You want to do that? I'll get you a hooker. So as things go on, then there is a moment where uh, uh, Julia and the father do get together. And then there is a moment where Patrick and his father's uh, mistress do get together. Then there's this like moment where they all get into a car and they go to some other place they together. Go to Verona. Yeah, Verona. They go to Verona. Yeah, yeah exactly. The home of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, they they go visit a, a And they actually shoot at well, no, no, that's, that's Juliet's actual, actual balcony. That's great. They go to Verona and so they're like, oh wow. Well, he's with her, but he's had sex with her. And then he's with her, but he's had sex with her. And it has this whole and this one's the father and this one's the uh, uh, it's all the different permutations that are possible are, are going on. romantically are being intertwined and in and this the, kind of moral play. And the thing about it is it just brings to mind an Eric Romer movie very much. So. I mean, especially Claire's Knee. Yeah, we kept talking about yeah. it. Like, it brings to mind an Eric Romer movie, but as opposed to an Eric Romer movie, an Eric Romer movie that delivers, <laughs> where they actually do have sex. And you, and it actually, they do deliver tentilation. And they do deliver uh, uh erotica, yeah. you know? And then it also has a 
plays a bit like those uh, uh, Richard Linklater, uh, uh, Julie Delpy movies, which are jumping off from the Eric Romer movies. Because- Yeah, the before film. Well, frankly, the characters don't talk like Eric Romer characters. They talk more like Richard Linklater characters. Yeah. <laughs> They're making kind of interesting pop culture references. It's, it's, I really, really- dug this movie. I love this type of European erotica. It's 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 my favorite form of erotica. Uh I thought Sylvia Crusoe was was terrific in the movie. I didn't like Patrick, but that's another one of the things I like about the movie. I like that they usually put creeps, you know, <laughs> in the middle of these movies. The the boys coming of age are never like cool guys. All yeah. right. They're always something dubious. And about when them. they do finally have sex, it's very uncomfortable feeling. Mm. For a movie where all of the women are so liberated and just like free. Yeah. And, and magnificent music. The movie has a fantastic yeah. soundtrack. The movie's very well scored. It's got a fantastic sound. And, it's and got very a, well shot. It's got a great look. I mean, what? It just, it looks like. You know, it looks like an Eric Romer movie, like a very well-crafted no, no, Eric no, you, Romer movie. You could believe a Nestor Elementros maybe shot this. You know, the way, you know, all the scenes on the lake, they're all, the, the sun is catching the, uh, catching the water and there's all the, the light figments going on. It's it's this type of Italian German erotica that I that that actually takes itself fairly seriously yeah. that I like the most when it comes to erotic films. I give the, uh, this, this stuff is just so much better than the way the Americans do it. And uh, um, and we're, we're naming things that are it's like it's like an Eric Roman movie that delivers. All right, and it's you. Know, uh, but it's also very similar. And I, I think this was maybe a jumping off point. Is very similar to a Radley Metzger movie totally. that doesn't quite deliver as much as a Radley Metzger movie yeah. delivers. He's my favorite of all the erotic directors for sure from that era. And we're back. Gala. You know, before I get into it, do I see a Franklin Browner review over there? It, it is. I, I kind of spiked most of the, my thoughts from his review, but I'll go ahead and read it in my best Franklin Browner voice that I can muster up. Wouldn't it be nice to watch an Eric Romer movie and get something out of it? <laughs> <laughs> or a change? If you feel thusly, Siri Rothamund has got you covered, even though the same can't be said for his actresses. Each one more beautiful than the next, and each one more hot to trot. No one can seem to keep their clothes on as they travel from one country house to another, in and out of linens, grinding up against each other with grimaced faces, as if their copulation was painful. It's a downright sexy romp, so why do I feel such an overwhelming sense of dread as I watch the bodies unfurl? As if Roman Plansky might take the directing reins for a while and steer the film into an abstract schizophrenic nightmare. <laughs> Mercifully, that never happens. But there's no comfort that it might not happen either. And that's what makes the film compelling beyond its obvious Eurotrash titillation. A solid B for Boner. <laughs> I think that encapsulates the movie pretty well. <laughs> you know, I was not such a big fan of this movie. First, I was like, okay, that byline on that VHS box that you Her have. first adventure or the first time can the be the best time? first time can be the best time. Okay, so, like, is her first time in the Coliseum, like, with a dad on top of her? Yeah, that's the first she, time. Or is it? Because now you have me thinking. How much of what he's Well, seeing, no, 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 you're, you're 100% correct. We don't, 
Anything that is seen from Patrick's perspective, we have no idea if it happened. Well, one, I mean, the very ending, we don't know if the entire summer happened. Yeah. Yeah. The entire summer might be just nothing but a Patrick fantasy. Yeah, that could have been the time loop right there. And you know what? That is actually- I mean, that's what the movie's saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what the movie's saying. Well, it's either saying that or it's saying that Patrick has now changed and he will make the move. In, you know, in in future, but it's the same woman. It's the mistress. You know, yeah. and it has to well, be. Well, no, the movie goes back in time to right where it starts again. So it, no, the summer didn't happen. Yeah, and that actually right. is that actually makes me like the movie, like yeah, yeah. this whole idea. I love that part at the end. That, I I love that in European erotica when they do that. Yeah, yeah but I love this whole idea of like maybe the summer didn't happen because there's one aspect of the movie that you guys didn't touch on in your discussion, which is the death of his friend. Oh yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah, and we did not talk about that. The, de- the depth right. of the Seymour Philip Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. guy. All right, this shows up. Yeah, yeah. I, where basically dr- drowns yeah. on the lake. Yeah. His friend drowns on the lake. Which, by the way, I was talking about like uh, impending doom and dread that's hanging over this yeah. movie. When he ties the steering wheel and has the thing going at like full, you know, throttle, yeah. shooting across that lake, and everybody just starts reclining and sleeping mm-hmm. and yeah. like and making out. Well, so we can yeah, so we can squeeze Sylvia Cristal's. I'm waiting for the the. Freaking boat to crash. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and, and so is Patrick. And, yeah. Patrick. and Patrick is actually, he's defending her honor kind of in the boat because that's why the fight begins is because first off, his friend before they get on the boat is like, oh, the last girl I was with had to fake it to like tell me that she had a good time. And like, he's like kind of telling Patrick that. And then when they get on the boat, he starts like groping Julia and then reveals that Julia's a virgin. And that's when Patrick gets like really heated. And he's, I think he even grabs his friend and says, she's mine. Yeah, yeah, he does. At yeah, one yeah, point. yeah. yeah. Gets and then super he, possessive. when his friend dies, like when he falls off the boat and he dies, Patrick blames himself and says, like, it's my fault. Mm-hmm. And he kind of falls into this depression. And that's why they go. I think they go to Verona. I think yeah, for yeah. that yeah, reason. Yeah, you're right to bring him out to of To kind of bring him out of his depression after he yeah, just. Yeah, you need a change of scenery after Patrick's death. Yeah. Or not no, Patrick, no, Patrick, whatever the kid's name is. Yeah, was. after your friend's death. And then he tries. Philip Seymour. <laughs> yeah, Philip Seymour's death. <laughs> and then he tries to rape the. Little French Philip Seymour, little Swiss Philip Seymour. Hoffman. Oh, the, the, the hot. The, the uh, hot maid. The great maid. I love the maid. Savannah. You, Savannah. Yeah. So I love Savannah's character. Because Patrick. Has just seen her basically have sex. This maid that was Christine Glasner with the other people in the house, where they take all of this whipped cream. Sorry, Quentin, that I'm gonna just describe this scene, but they take all this whipped cream and they pour it all over her, and they undo her top and they pour it all over her, and then they're like, "Oh, my little cherry sundae," and then like they start having sex with her. Okay, it reminded me of the weirdness of the Cocaine Cowboys baby powder sex scene because I'm thinking like, "What the hell is going on in this house?" Okay, during this scene. I averted my eyes, all right, uh, because I despise sex scenes that incorporate food inside them. I find it nauseating. Yeah. And and, and this was as nauseating, this one is like as, extra nauseating as it ever gets. The movie allows itself to become grotesque when it yeah. wants to be grotesque. The whole Peter Burling, the Uncle Alex character who's mm-hmm. like a, a composer or something, the big fat, like he, he came walking out of a Ken Russell movie. Yeah, 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 yeah he yeah. totally did. And is there playing the piano and he's got that hot uh, Aunt Miriam or whatever, Gisela Hahn. Yeah. Uh, well, that's his wife. His wife. Yeah, yeah. Who's just well? She's a, the wife's a lesbian. He's supposedly yeah. Gay, they're just like then, libertines. Yeah, yeah he's they're, having, they're having a good time. No, no, they, they are a character straight out of a Rudley Metzger film. Yeah. <laughs> they're the libertines. Yeah. yeah, they're totally libertines. And if if you read the movie straight, like everything that is shown on screen actually happens. Like the dad has sex with Julia. It's a, this weird like 
the dad in a weird way is liberating Patrick to be able to move forward with Julia because they have this whole conversation at the cafe where he says, why can't you move forward with Julia? Oh, because she's a virgin. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, no, weird- no, the dad, no, it, it, in this, in this, in Patrick's scenario, if it is true, that is exactly why the dad did it. And yeah. that's the weirdest part to me is like watching it and thinking at first I'm like, oh God, this dad is just like a jerk. Like he has like this hot girlfriend who, by the way, is his secretary. Not yeah. his secretary. I'm sorry. His accountant. His accountant. His yeah. accountant. Yeah. And because when the mother finally the shows comes, up. And yeah, she's she, been embezzling. Who's a fantastic character when she shows up. Yeah. Dominique yeah. Del Pierre. You don't expect her to show up in like, she, uh, she's a wonderful third act uh, yeah. addition. But the father's girlfriend has been embezzling money from the mother's company, which yeah. is like like, even this weird layer. But, like, at first you're like, God, Like, there's a lot going on script-wise in this yeah. movie. At first you're like, God, this dad is just a jerk. Like, he has, like, this girlfriend. He's supposed to be spending time with his son, and he's, like, kind of just not. And then it's like he's having sex with Julia, but, like, is he, isn't he? And then but when then you think a, about it, like, is but, he actually doing him a favor? It's really weird. But then there's the whole thing that it's, like— Julia doesn't seem to be enjoying the sex, but it like, but almost like it could be a rape. But since it's never yeah. brought up again, that you like, well, maybe I'm wrong, yeah, uh, you know. Uh, but 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 again, it. That's like why it, that it, byline. It, it's is, a it's a it's a zillion it's a zillion question marks. But then actually, oddly enough, all the questions get answered at the end. Yeah, well, like that's why that byline is so confusing to me. Oh, the first time could be the best. Well, I don't think that in the in the Coliseum is like what I would consider the best. And even Patrick, but I think, but I think Patrick and Julia, the, the, Patrick and Julia's sex scene. Okay, so. When they're on the dock at the very beginning, oh, yeah. Julia like wants to have sex with him, and Patrick's like, "No, it has to be done in a bed. Like yeah, the yeah. first time should not be done like on the cold ground." And then eventually, at the end of the movie, where Patrick and Julia have sex together, they're in the rain on the tennis court, in and it's mud. a clay court, yeah, clay, so it's yeah. like a muddy. And it's kind of and it's, it's kind of an ugly sex scene. Yeah. It's kind of an ugly sex scene, yeah, yeah. but it's like kind of realistic and like raw. Like if you actually were having sex on in the middle of like a storm on a tennis court, like I'm guessing like, that's what it would be like. Well, it, when, as if you anyone would want to do that. Well, when the sex scene begins, though, it's even weirder because it's almost like they are the net having sex while standing them. and they're having sex through the net. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, this movie and movies like this, like Emmanuel mm-hmm. and. When I was a kid, like when I was, you know, the age and little darlings, like this movie and movies like it came out and it completely fucked me up because I thought this is what all of Europe was like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just assumed this is what Europeans are like. This is the social uh, document that I have. Well, an interesting thing that you said that I want to go back to is the idea that when you mentioned that they go, you know. Everyone seems to be having a good time, but there is this foreboding doom mm-hmm. that seems to be hanging over the movie. And I, I keep waiting for everything to go bad. Well, you're not wrong because that kind of forbidding doom is almost, again, another part of a lot of these uh, uh, European classy erotica movies yeah. because they usually do end up going bad. They usually yeah. they usually do end up in tragedy or debasement or at least a broken heart, yeah. you know, uh, uh, to some degree or another. So, you, you know, you're not wrong. One thing I like about Julia or the movie Julia is I like in the end where they're like, oh, we're going to get married. Nothing is going to come between us. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And they get to the house and they don't even get in the door. Yeah. That was, I, that was so I, realistic. I actually, I actually forgot about that. And that was a, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. That was that an was, amazing moment. That, that was, was all of our dreams. Oh, yeah. and, oh well, I guess we're uh, not going to do it. And then it's like, okay, so I guess I'm going to go home. Okay, so. I'll see you next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, are we even going to see each other? They, they went from like, we're going to get married to like, okay, uh, 
I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but you know what? It's that realism. And we actually find that realism also in Little Darlings. Yeah. Uh, at the very end when Matt Dillon is so uh, like, let's give it a go, blah, blah, blah. And she's just like, look, like we didn't ever had a beginning. We just had the middle. And like, I'll never forget you. But like, it's over. And it's this kind of realism that it's like life is not a fairy tale. Like, yeah. It's not just going to be for Tatum O'Neill. Like, yeah. oh, all sunshine and rainbows. Mm-hmm. You're going to, like, have some experiences that don't don't last forever. Well, it's interesting, Little Darlings, because she's sort of like, let's, like, why pretend? Yeah. Okay, so I think it's time to give out some awards. Let's do it. I know who Best Actress is, and I'm going to start off. Okay, you go ahead. Uh, For my money, Christy McNichol... All the way, best actress. Even though this is a, yeah. a like these two girls are really a team in this. Mm-hmm. Christy McNichol really blew me away and and completely upturned all my expectations of who she was mm-hmm. as an actress. And I have a profound, newfound respect for her. And I actually and the, and this director Ron Maxwell. I'd really, really want to watch uh, with you the night the lights went out in Georgia. Yeah, me too. Uh, okay, but while we're still with you, uh, why don't you uh, pick uh, Best Actress and Best Actor? Okay, uh, Best Actor, I'm uh, I'm going to have to go with um, Your Man and Mine, Elliot. No! No. Yes. You pick. You got to pick one or the other. Mm. Yes, uh, Mikey and Nikki you know situation. What? Uh, yeah, Mikey and Nikki. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a Mike. I'm gonna, you know what? I'm going to go with Elliot Gould. Okay. As Detective Michael Keneally. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though Elliot Gould is probably just playing Elliot Gould, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he's trying at all to do anything beyond his Dick Cavett appearance that won him this role. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, he's fucking Elliot Gould. Gould. Yes, I. <laughs> he's I'm, great. I'm not arguing at all. As, Peter Himes liked him. He cast him in the lead of his very next movie. Yeah, and he and he did not end Capricorn, up throwing acid Capricorn. into his eyes. Yes. And so he <laughs> he must have delivered to Peter Hyams. Oh, my God. Don't fuck up my picture. Uh, so Armand Asandi would be uh, supporting. supporting. Okay, yeah. So I'm also going to go with Elliot Gould for best actor because I was laughing my butt off. Mm-hmm. I still am laughing my butt off. And I wasn't expecting to laugh just because I don't always find this kind of humor funny, but mm-hmm. Ellie Gould really sold it. And I got to go with Christy McNichol because she, I felt represented mm-hmm. in a movie where I don't think I relate to that character in that way. She's anyway. just marvelous in this she, movie. She, and you know what? You say that her and Tana O'Neill are like a team, and yeah, they're a team, but I think Christy McNichol's carrying the movie. Well, also screen like her the screenplay. She does have the services. Part. Yeah, that yeah. that part is the better part because it has the the emotionally crushing. Like the other one, uh, Tatum O'Neill's character. Um, she still goes the, the through dis- it. She goes through it, but her the disservice to her is that she's kind of still living in the fantasy. She yeah. has she hasn't really changed. But it's because she hasn't lost her virginity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. And, and that's a wonderful thing, yeah. according to Christy McNichol at the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will choose uh, uh, Christy McNichol from Little Darlings Woo-hoo! as well. Yes, she's, it's a sweep. It's a sweep, all right. And I will go with Robert Blake from Busting, just because I love Robert Blake With so a much. cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, Best Supporting Actress. Okay, well, if it's Best Supporting Actress, I'm going with Terry Tordal as Yvonne, the mistress accountant. A uh, wonderful Hungarian actress from Julia. I would, cho- I would choose her too. 
she's, she, my, she's, she's my best supporting I actress. I was just well. completely I, following her. I love the movie. I love her. I love her and Julia. I love she steals the movie as far as I'm concerned. She's terrific. Uh uh before we saw Julia, I would have chose uh, Cynthia Nixon. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, Because she's so funny. And she should still get an honorable mention. I'm giving, and that's what I'm doing. I'm giving, (laughs) I'm definitely giving her an honorable mention. But uh, uh, Terry Torday as uh, the hot pants mistress on the train in Julia, uh, she's incredible. I love her. I'm going to give it to the girl that plays Dana. In Dana. Little Darlings, Alexa, I love that's a, Dana. Alexa Cannon. Alexa, I, oh, the one with the, the agent. Pronounce that correctly. I, yeah. I love she's, her. Her character, she's so funny. Yeah. She has a lot of good lines, and also I like she's the only one, the only character that backs uh, Christy McNichol yeah, for yeah. the bet. Yeah, she's yeah, the only yeah, one that right. believes in her. Oh. and I like that. I like yeah. that character. Right on. So. Cool. Okay, best supporting actor. For that, I'm going with Armand Asante because I think that's a really, really tough role to pull off. To take that mm-hmm. role, to choose like. I'm going to do that role and to be the guy who's too old mm-hmm. for Tatum O'Neill to still be the dream boat and to be the stand up guy in the end. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a tight rope walking act that yeah. he did to pull that off and to pull it off. Well, I'm definitely going with Alan Garfield. All right. Good, uh, good. I, I have no problem with your Armand Asante choice, but I am definitely going with Alan Garfield as Rizzo. Uh, uh, like, and like I said, just, I'm thinking about busting right now, and I just see him. I see his chubby little self uh, running <laughs> his, around in, that, uh, in, in, his, in a hospital gown with his out. butt hanging out, yeah, and just laughing, laughing like a hyena. Uh, may May Gorwitz rest in peace. Yeah. I'm gonna go with Armand Asante also because that line reading Quentin that you mentioned uh-huh. earlier in the show. Uh-huh. I love it because she refers to him as like Mister. I don't remember his name in the mm-hmm. movie, but like Mister So and So, and he's like, Oh, mm-hmm. please, like we're, we've been intimate, yeah, yeah, haven't yeah, yeah, yeah. we? And it's such a good line, and he teeters. Like, so easily that character could feel like a pedophile. Like, so easily. And he somehow doesn't. And he, like, still is kind and of And he still, he still remains a dreamboat. Like, a yeah. kind yeah. of uh It's still the, the, the teacher that the girl will fantasize about. Okay, uh, best director. Oh, I can say that one easy. Peter Hyams. Yeah, <laughs> like, Peter Hyams. Okay, but I, you know, Peter I have, Hyams I have, it is. It's a I sweep. I have a question, though, about that. He's normally the guy that, like, does it all. Mm-hmm. But he's not the cinematographer on this movie, is he? Yeah, no, he's, he became this is, this the is guy early, who did still, it all. Yeah, this is still earlier enough in his career. Yeah. I mean, that's a bold choice to say I'm going to be the cinematographer. It, it took him a few yeah. movies before he was ready to do yeah. that. Yeah, but this because yeah. the cinematography on this on busting is really good. Oh, it's fantastic! Yeah, super energetic. Yeah, yeah. I'm going for Ron Maxwell for best script. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah. Actually, you know what? That actually makes total sense. I mean, yeah. I mean, Ron Maxwell should also. Receive a director accolade. Oh, well, well we, he, he can't. You can't. He you know? can't. I'm just saying. I he, if, if, if 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 Ron if is Peter listening, I decided to become Peter Himes and do some of the best action sequences. Morning. You know, best action sequences of the '70s, where he predates Hong Kong. Then Ron, then well, Ron Maxwell would have won. Ron right? Maxwell did some great battle no, scenes but, later yeah. on in life. But, so but you know what? Though <laughs> the reason why Peter Himes, besides becoming Peter Himes, he like his use of that. Door dolly? Doorway yeah, dolly. The yeah, doorway yeah. dolly is like mind opening. It's mind altering. Yeah, and I it's think. Matthew's doorway dolly. Yeah. The performance that uh, Ronald Maxwell gets out of her, Christy McNichol. McNichol, is so good, but it's not a doorway dolly. Like yeah, yeah, sequence yeah, yeah. after sequence after sequence. Now, oddly enough, when it comes to cinematography, 
I almost feel like I need to choose busting because of everything we talked about, how they were pushing the cinematography. I do feel that that's Peter Himes more than the cinematographer. That's the cinematographer rising to the occasion for what Peter Himes wants. There is a part of me that almost wants to give the cinematography to Julia. Julia is very well shot. It's very well shot. I mean, Julia is- It's very classy. It's, it's very well shot. It's a very classy, well shot movie that is a travelogue film yeah. that's showing off Europe. We do should mention, because you brought it up slightly, we didn't go into it. There is a scene, they go to Verona, Italy, and there's a scene where they, they actually play out a scene in a fun the way at the at the uh, Juliet uh, uh, balcony where uh, yeah, Sylvia they, Cristal like climbs up and and takes she the actually balcony. does a kind of take on yeah. uh, uh, and it's well, she actually Juliet's. recounts like the entire monologue and it's a really good scene. It's the scene that's the most like an Eric Romer yeah. scene. All right, yeah. that's that's the scene. The movie's Julia is like there's there's legit stuff that happens in Julia all the way through the movie, but that was one of the most legit. The movie cares about more than just the sex in the film. Yeah, yeah. It's delivering what it needs to deliver to be that programmer mm -hmm. that is required by uh, you know by the market at that time. And as having said that, it is a fully realized movie about human beings. Yeah. I agree. It's an it's a it's a it's a deep study on people, and, and, I would, it, and it takes the time to go to Verona yeah. and to go to Juliet's balcony and to stage a scene there. Okay. Best film. I have to go with Little Darlings. I, I laughed. I almost cried. I had a great time. You know what? I'm going to go with Little Darlings also. I, I'm going with Little Darlings. Wow! Wow, I was sure you were going to go with Busting. I, I almost can't believe that I'm not going with Busting. I, uh, but I, I was just t tenderly touched by it. And Chrissy McNichol blew, blew my mind. Blew my mind. I love the comedy in it. I love the guys uh, in Busting. I love uh, the way it hops from uh, uh, set piece to set piece. But at the end of the day, there is a punch at the end. The, there's a freeze, the freeze frame that happens at the end of Little Darlings. Just it's one of those freeze frames that just highlights how much you enjoyed this movie. And like and you're almost a little you're almost a little yeah, the way that song kicks in, you're almost a little unaware about how much you enjoyed it until all of a sudden it stops. It's so good. And also there's like this weird part of me that thought maybe their parents are gonna get together and all of a sudden they're gonna be sisters. Like it's like of course with the girls <laughs> fantasy. Sequel. Sequel. <laughs> but I mean like it's it's a really good ending. Yeah. It's fulfilling. And that brings us to another end of uh, our show. I want to thank Gala. I want to thank my co-host. Uh, Roger. Roger Robert Avery. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And I'll see you next time in podcast land. Be kind, rewind. Arrivederci. Bye, everyone. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellam. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod.
despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 